Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and our week in IndyCar show, the all listener driven, all via social media, our Q&A show. It's becoming a little bit of a thing lately and I'm really happy that folks seem to like the change we've made instead of bolting on your Q&A after our weekly guest, just breaking this out into an episode of its own. And this week, our guests are meant to be the fine duo of Alexander Rossi and James Hinchcliffe. Going to do something a little bit different, though, in that we usually post the driver interview, team owner interview, whomever it happens to be, the guest that joins us. That tends to go up first each week, followed by the Q&A episode. Well, there's this little event down in Australia called the Bathurst 1000 their equivalent size and grandeur-wise of our Indy 500. And due to time zone differences, the fact that here recording this Wednesday morning in California, they are asleep Thursday morning and will be getting up sometime soon here in a few hours. But we've been having a little bit of difficulties in terms of time zone. And even when we've found a moment that works, there'd be a 10-minute window where they could speak. And as you know, 10 minutes won't get it done on the weekend IndyCar. Usually go at least a half an hour, if not an hour. So still trying to find that window with our good friends at Andretti Autosport who are looking after the communications side, at least for these two knuckleheads, as they take part in the very first Bathurst 1000, part of the Australian Supercar Series, in the number 27 Walkinshaw Andretti United Holden Commodore. So while we wait to find out when we can speak with the mayor of Hinchtown and the, I don't know, what is he? Uh, The delegate from Reno City, California, Rossi. Uh, I'm just going to do the Q&A here and maybe hopefully soon we can speak to those guys and post that show. So as we normally do, we kick off the Q&A with a little bit of thank you to our partners, and then also a thank you to you all for the great questions that get sent in every week because we do something with one of our partners that I guess is a way to give back and say thank you. So as always, everything we do here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast is made possible by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and the fine, fine folks at Bell Racing Helmets. What we do each week, this is all through our Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, is when I send out the request for your questions, for our guests, and for me, tell you that, hey, whomever's question gets the most likes, the one that gets the most reaction from folks, well, our good pals at torontomotorsports.com have been sending a little care package. Your choice of whatever MP podcast t-shirt could be the week in IndyCar, could be the week in sports cars, could be the hamburger and French fry show, stickers, some little beer or drink koozies. My man Derek Costco, who runs TorontoMotorsports.com, not far from Toronto itself in lovely Canada, he just throws in a bunch of goodies. So thanks to him. Thanks to you all. We do this each week. Would urge you to hit the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. If you have sent in a question, 
Get your friends to give it some likes. If you just like free stuff, it's a democratic system, maybe. Or, as I've just revealed, you can game it heavily and get all your friends and family to like your question the most. And then, in theory, you get free stuff. So, yeah, it's the American way. Uh, Rig the system. Get what you want. And off we go. So this time around, our man, someone who sends in questions every week, and thank you for this, Jameen Tuttle. His question for last week's guest, Harding Steinbrenner Racing President Brian Barnhart. That one got the most likes, and I can understand why. He said, Brian, did you ever have the urge to knock one of Robin Miller's teeth out when you worked for IndyCar? And he also asked, what was the best driver meltdown you happened to oversee during your time there? Was it Will Power or Elio? We also spoke about whether he wanted to knock out any of my teeth as well. Not everything that I wrote about Dear Brian was super complimentary. Nonetheless, thanks to Jameen for sending that in, and thanks to everyone who liked it the most. So, Jameen, send me a direct message. Send me something. Get me your email address. We'll get you linked up with TorontoMotorsports.com and get you some free gear. So that's that. I'm going to jump into your questions here in just a moment. We'll mention it was really fun to finally see Marcus Erickson confirmed at Chip Ganassi Racing. I know that a week or two ago on the Q&A portion of the Weekend IndyCar podcast, I'd mentioned that Chip Ganassi Racing was a possibility for Marcus, a Swedish newspaper or online entity. I'm not exactly sure what it was. Pick that up and... Then it looked like I was just really excellent at guessing the future and a little bit of transparency here, as is often the case with myself. And I would assume many other reporters can't always say what you know when you know it. Sometimes you have to either play dumb or just be dumb. I would say that uh, I am able to straddle both lines very, very ably. Um Back, I think it was October or so. October, good Lord. We're just into October, idiot. Back in August, I believe. It might have even been late July. I'm not sure. Just texting with Marcus about a variety of things. Had mentioned that while looking for his 2020 options, one of those being staying with the Schmidt peterson Motorsports team, which will become here, I think now. Is it officially Spam? Under the Aero McLaren SP banner, not exactly sure when that switchover happens, but while looking for homes, had mentioned there were some places that interested him. He didn't necessarily know who to speak with. And so, as I do every week, and again, I'm sure other reporters do as well, he helped make some connections, shared some contact information with Marcus that made it easier for him to link up with the folks at Ganassi. There are one or two teams thrown in there as well. So not something that I was going to mention because, granted, you might think it's a quid pro quo kind of thing. All right, well, I'll give you this contact info, but you then owe me something in return in terms of news or you got to let me break it first. Meh, not really into that so much because I figure if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Also like to think that, I try and stay on top of things enough to kind of know when most things are happening. Not all, but I try and make it most. So did that, caught up with Marcus at 
Monterey. And while he didn't say Ganassi, knowing the situation with the other teams that he'd reached out to and what they had available and whether I knew they would be pursuing him or if that seat was truly still open, sat down. He just shared when I asked, hey, how are things going, by the way, in terms of getting your new home sorted out? And he said, very simply, succinctly, uh, one of those contacts been very valuable, to which I said, great, great to hear it. Can't wait to learn about whatever's coming. And again, at least with what I'd known about who he was connected with, Ganassi definitely started to look like the front runner. So none of this means anything. Just trying to do a little bit more of what I've been wanting to do and I guess trying to do, and that's share a little bit of the background, the inside baseball stuff about how some of these things happen. I don't know if you care, but I just shared it. And if you don't, I'm sure you'll tell me. So not a surprise to see that Marcus ended up at Ganassi. will be interesting to see how the team continues to look for other ways to keep more of its sports car team employed since the team is shutting down the IMSA program after this weekend's season finale in Road Atlanta. So that's that little nugget. We'll share one other thing, one or two other things. Had another team owner, I guess, instead of it being a driver this time, asking for contacts with teams to find a new home. Had a driver reach out this week. Jeez. Team owner reach out this week and ask for the contact info for one, just say, young and talented driver and happily help that team owner with that information. Can't tell you who, but I can say that yet again with this silly season thing, it just keeps going. Uh, And when this team owner reached out and asked for contact info for the driver in question, happily helped them with it. I've done it for many, many years in the past. But the thing that stood out most of all was, oh, maybe things aren't as done as I thought they were with the one seat that you had possibly available. So it's these kinds of things. Don't see it on the surface. Doesn't really manifest. You just end up reading the story. Team A has hired driver B, and there you go. Just kind of fun to see, at least from my perspective, on this side of the fence now, how these things play out. And I'll be very frank, when I was an IndyCar crew member, an engineer, team manager, whatever, all these things, still didn't see all these sides exactly. You know, if I'm working for someone who owns an IndyCar team and I'm running it or assisting the team manager or sweeping the floor, whatever it was, unless you're sitting in that room while those calls are being made or those emails are being sent, you don't necessarily get to see all the fun little things like, oh, huh, dominoes are starting to fall or potentially, or hmm, didn't even know who all was at the table playing the game of dominoes. So I'll admit, it's kind of fun. Wish I could tell y'all everything that happens, when it's going down, who reaches out to ask about what, blah, blah, blah really can only do those things afterwards. Otherwise, you lose the trust of those who are 
confident they can reach out and ask for help and have that help or whatever it is remain in confidence until whatever it is comes to a conclusion. With all that said, Jameen, send me an email, send me a something. We'll get you a little care package of MP podcast stuff headed your way. Uh, TorontoMotorsports.com is going to, as we do, kind of one week delay. Each new episode, we look back at whose question got the most likes from the previous week on our Facebook page. With our guests, Mr. Hinch, Mr. Rossi, we're going to do maybe a strange giveaway on my podcast, but that's giving away Toronto Motorsports stuff for Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Why? Because I don't really give a crap, right? There's no competition here. It's nothing but love for those two and their show. So whomever's question this week gets the most likes, assuming you're fans of those two and didn't just happen upon this and are really bored. Make sure you get folks to pump up those likes because they're going to be giving away three gift packs of Hinch and Rossi. I think it's T-shirts, the anti-thim stickers, and some other nonsense. So giving away swag from a, quote, rival show, giving away their nonsense instead of my nonsense. Uh, Hopefully that's a wash. All righty. We're going to start rocking and rolling here. I am staring at 1,588 words of questions you all have sent in for me. I'm going to rip through them as quickly as I can. My official timekeeper, Ryan Terpstra, I look forward to your report on how well I've blown through any prediction for how long it's going to take. Uh, Also, we'll mention that we have a proud new sponsor joining the show That is Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service. We will have some T-shirts dedicated to our new show sponsor here very soon. Uh, Thank you to Andre Good for sending in a few questions that were presented by Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service. Also believe a couple months ago in the show, in some sort of recollection of my fondness for the worst racing movie of all time, Driven, And having been there in 2000, while some of it was filmed on the cart circuit, uh, I think I might have mentioned something similar about this being a service that Joe Tonto should offer. So between my nonsensical mention, Andre Good's nonsensical mention, really happy to hear that a new company has been formed and they've chosen to sponsor the Marshall Pro Podcast. So if you're a potential client or just a big fan of Joe Tonto, and his ability to retrieve quarters. We'll have some t-shirts coming very soon at torontomotorsports.com that you can own or request if you happen to win one of our weekly giveaways. All right, let's get rolling here. Mike Jablo, you're up first. Say, MP, after reviewing the test of the aero screen, do you think it would have made a difference in the Dan Weldon and Justin Wilson accidents? Mike says, hashtag me personally. I thought moving the roll hoop forward like a top field dragster would enhance the protection of the driver's head. Start with the last comment first here, Mike. If you look at what the aero screen has become, if we forget what the first version was in 2018, 
which was just the lower frame bolted to the chassis. And then the PPG Opticore material, this uh, see-through, you know, call it fighter jet or airliner type window. If you forget that, which did not have anything on the top side to hold it rigid, and just look at what we have now, which is a Formula One style halo with the screen material added on top. We've effectively, we, IndyCar, they have effectively created exactly what you're referring to here, the roll hoop coming forward. So with the mounting for the halo, which locks in up front where the new AFP advanced frontal protection device was positioned, that bolts directly into a structural member. The bulkhead, the dash bulkhead, which is made out of metal. Uh, Everything else between the bulkheads at the front of the car, the dash and behind the driver, everything else is composites. This is actual just straight up hard metal. This halo bolts into that hard, rigid structure, wraps around to the side, comes around the driver's helmet, above the driver's helmets too. It's another critical difference between the Formula One halo, which if you look at it from the side, it rises high up front, then actually tapers down at the back. And you can see the top of the driver's helmet is exposed. Not a lot, but you can see that if something were to follow the contour of the Formula One halo, a pole, if you were to take a pole, just static, just sitting on pit lane, take a a steel pole at the top, of the halo and let go of it, let it roll down, it would actually make contact with the top of the driver's helmet. It's not great. Hasn't been exposed as a problem yet, but could. This is something that bolts in the IndyCar solution made by Pankel. It's an Austrian firm, I believe, Swiss. I apologize if I'm getting it wrong, but Pankel's been around for a while They are phenomenal. (laughs) And this isn't me blowing smoke. This is just having worked with Pankel uh, from drive shafts to gearbox componentry to highly ornate and intricate uh, exotic metals being formed and shaped for race cars. I mean, their contracts with Formula One engine builders to make all kinds of pieces that spin at a zillion miles an hour. Formula One teams, that place is like Fort Knox. The amount of intellectual property that they hold on behalf of their clients is all locked away in a vault that is, you would think it was Fort Knox. So this is, you, for the most part, cannot find a better partner than IndyCar has with Pankel to manufacture the halo portion of this aero screen. And so this comes around and it bolts into the same location where the primary roll hoop you're speaking of, Mike, the top part of the car, connects to the chassis itself. So we have something that is effectively an extension of the roll hoop, creating this cage-like scenario around the driver. So that is, that's the core of the safety 
advancement or change that is coming with this arrow screen. Your first question, and I wanted to put this up front, we don't have many arrow screen questions. I know it's become a polarizing thing already just because of its looks, but I am totally comfortable having been there. Well, I am more than comfortable in saying based on what I have seen, what I know, I am totally confident that if the arrow screen 2.0 with the halo was installed on the old Delara and also the new Delara that two very good friends of mine, one of them was uh, among my best friends would still be alive. That's not wishful thinking. That's not just pulling that opinion out of my backside. Um, Share a little bit here. I've shared this once or twice before. Uh, I'm sure it's been said elsewhere, so I don't think I'm saying anything super new. It just hasn't, to my knowledge, been spoken of a lot. But uh, Dan, Dan was alive. Dan was not killed uh, in the contact with the pole immediately. Um, I spoke with Townsend Bell uh, not immediately after the crash. I was there that day in Las Vegas, unfortunately, but spoke with Townsend, I don't know, a couple days after. And I believe he was the first person to get to Dan, the first or second. But he told me, that Dan was alive. Uh, he you know, ran up to the car, stuck his head in the, the cockpit, and said Dan was alive. Uh, there, you know, could see looking into the helmet that he was alive, but also saw that there was severe damage to his helmet, which you can then logically um, deduce that that damage had reached Dan's head. Justin, the most random of things, right? We know, most of you probably know how that played out. Sage Karam crashed at Pocono. The nose of his car came off and drilled Justin in the helmet. And just totally random. Wasn't Sage's fault. Wasn't Justin's fault. Just randomness of the universe um, claiming one of the sweetest, dearest men I've known. That is especially troubling knowing that we think about the arrow screen and the halo that sits beneath it. I can't think of a way it would have hit Justin there's the chance, obviously, that something could get thrown up high in the air and then come back down and go straight into the top of the car. But just in terms of how crashes tend to play out, that's, yeah, that's not something I can really recall being a reality. I'm not saying it's never happened, just saying you rarely get this 
you know, big fly ball, this big pop up that then just comes down and hits a driver on truly the top of their head. It's usually coming at them at a visor or some sort of angle more horizontal than vertical. So, yeah, Mike, in the case of Justin, uh, he'd still be alive. No question, because this exact safety item is the thing that is meant to prevent such things like this ever happening again. With Dan, I'm also confident that if we go back in time, and we're talking about a different car, but if all of the same modifications had been made, the same amount of strength was contained within that previous generation Dallara chassis, the IR08, I believe. Same mounting point at the front, the dash bulkhead, the rear the roll hoop, I can't see how Dan would be lost because this does cover the entire driver's helmet. There's also that center leg that bolts to, again, what we call the AFP area now. That is the thing that stops something coming straight at the driver, and then we have the rest of the cage around that goes above the helmet on both sides. That, again, you have something that is meant to stop the exact kind of steel pole contact that Dan experienced. So you know, the only wild card here for me is the intensity of the crash. So we have the speed of the vehicle, the weight of the vehicle. We have the force of it striking the pole. Could this be something that somehow ripped the front of the halo out of its mounting? Again, I can't speak to some of those things because until a car, until this would be replicated exactly, it'd be very hard to say. But I do know, Mike, that there are a couple of inspirations for what has been created with the arrow screen and Dan and Justin and their two fatal crashes are at the absolute epicenter of what they have come up with, the final product, this halo with a screen around it. So knowing the forces that it is meant to withstand, uh, the halo itself can hold, it's 150 kilonewtons, which I just did a little bit of Googling fun, and you can place the weight of six, uh, I believe, fully kitted out, more or less all the options, Chevy Silverados on top of that halo frame. That's what it will hold. So when I think about six Chevy Silverados, big old American pickup trucks being held by that halo, I just have to believe that if we'd had the, let's be really honest, we've been through a couple of regime changes since Dan's crash. We've had a number of people come and go. The technical side, engineering side, president side, had a lot of changes. Uh, If previous administrations were motivated in the same way as the current administration has been. 
conversations, I believe, would be very different. It's not placing blame, just saying that, as is often the case, sometimes it takes different people in positions of power to embrace something that was acknowledged as an area that could be problematic. So, very thankful for Jay Fry, the Red Bull, Advanced Technologies team, Delara, Pankel, PPG, all those folks. I am just thankful as a lifelong fan of IndyCar, who's also made a living working in open wheel racing for the majority of my life. Thankful that we have action-oriented people who say, you know what? We don't need to let drivers die due to a failure of action or imagination on our part. All right, that's our opening long talk. Normally do that each week. Pick some sort of topic to open with. Drill down somewhat deep into it. Now we're going to start rolling into the rest of your questions at a faster clip. We're going to go to our pal Thomas Gross. He says, MP, can you explain how the joint team ventures work? For example, what is Harding, Mike Harding, bringing to the table in the new Andretti partnership? He says, it seems like Harding was not able to secure major funding for their own ride, so I cannot imagine they're bringing large relationships. Do they own a percentage of the operation and are they expected to put up a portion of the money do they receive a portion of the profits great questions thomas referring to the new andretti harding steinbrenner link up to run colton herder next year can't answer all your questions because as i say on almost a weekly basis i ask teams like andretti to send me all their contracts so i can look through them and know all the details Unfortunately, not quite at that place of trust yet, but I'm working on it. Kidding aside, since Harding is the one that you have highlighted specifically, a couple items here that I think might answer some of what you've posed. So with Mike, long time, very, very long time fan of IndyCar, also a very old friend of Michael Andretti with a desire having spent a lot of money over the years for doing giant parties at the Indy 500 said, Hey, why don't we actually try and do our own team and have our own car in the race that debuted in 2017 with Gabby Chavez, a really good limited program that year showed very well on the ovals that expanded obviously a bit more into a full-time effort for 2018 I think Mike, as I've mentioned a few times before in print and on the podcast, Mike fell victim to the same massive optimism that many fan-based team owners, smaller team owners, have fallen prey to in the past. And it goes something like this. I love this. This is the best done well in business, whether I started my own or I inherited a family business, whatever it is, not a tycoon, not a zillionaire. We make enough money to where I could start my own team, buy car, buy a car, buy two cars, get the transporter, get a shop, hire people. This is going to be amazing. And since I've made all these investments, 
And I believe we have and will put together a very good team with a good driver and all kinds of great stuff. Sponsors are going to see it. And my seed money, which is what I'm thinking of it as, it's seed money. I'm going to put up the money to get this thing going, put some money behind it to get it rolling. But I guarantee you folks are going to see that this is quadruple awesome and the money's going to come in. And then all of a sudden, I'm not going to have to pay for things anymore. And who knows if it's going to turn a profit, but it definitely isn't going to be a loss. Mike Harding's not the first, not the 50th team owner to run through that cycle. And as Mike found last year, uh, right around Indy, just before Indy possibly, but right around May of 2018 is when I started to hear, oh, they are tightening their belts. Boy, are they tightening their belts. And a lot of bills started coming due. A lot of money was needed to go out. There's some family issues Mike is said to have created. Uh, divorce proceedings were said to be imminent. A lot of a lot of questions about, okay, uh, money being spent, who owns what? We really need to dial things back and not entirely sure if we are going to make it through the end of the year. That's when I first started hearing word that there could be an interest in someone taking over the building they're in, which I've been told the lease on that is a staggering amount. A lot of bigger salaries being paid to a variety of people. Um, the outward impression, Thomas, is that, and this is another thing that has happened too many times as well. Hey, there's a really motivated guy who's got some money who wants to be involved for some folks. Hey, let's hop on the gravy train. This person doesn't really know the industry. Maybe I can get a lot of money out of them and hope I can just ride that for as long as I can until they find out, Hey, wait a, wait a minute. I'm paying you that how much? Because some of my friends are telling me that's double or triple what it should be. Or what is this lease? Or how? What? Uh, that's crazy amounts. Those are just some of the things that went around Thomas. Went around the paddock. So we get to a point to where money is super tight. Harding is looking at the team as a thing that was started as a passion project where he was hoping and expecting for sponsors to fill in. They didn't turn up. Now he's on the hook and not many people want to do a big splash, new team, all their friends, this huge snake pit type thing he puts on every year. If you're the life of the party, you never want to stop being the life of the party. And so I could see how that would be problematic to deal with. Hey, we're going to go big. <laughs> Forget renting a suite, putting up a this, doing that, having everything catered, and we're going to just drink like fish, and it's going to be a party. We're going to be in the freaking race. It's hard to step back from being that guy. And when you have the financial walls starting to close in, that's where things started to go bad. That's where Brian Barnhart starts trying to broker a deal with Andretti Technologies. That's where looking for ways to bring in 
a new partner in George Steinbrenner the fourth, his dad Hank. Lots of good folks. Sean Jones, who is George's stepfather. It's where a lot of creative stuff goes on to keep the team afloat. Those developments went on throughout the summer of 2018. I believe on Racer, we broke broke all this news about this coming together. It came together. Great. The idea here, to close quickly, was for Mike to obviously still be a co-owner, still had the shop, still owned all the assets, but for the financial burden to really no longer be his. There's a term, it changes a little bit based on where you're in the world, but it's generally referred to as the golden hard card. Other places they call it the golden headset. And that's the team owner who either funds things or contributes something might not be money again, could be cars or assets, whatever, but does something to be on the timing stand and seen as the team owner there. They could very well have their name in the team name as well, but it's a little bit more of a ceremonial role. Knowing that we have this situation where Harding's no longer able to spend or unable to spend to the level that he was, but still wanted to stay involved. This is how I understand, Thomas, things have come together under this new and ready Harding Steinbrenner program. Mike owns a lot of assets, cars, equipped, just everything to run this really amazing Harding Steinbrenner racing program in 2019. Although I do not know the contractual details based on what I've heard and some, you know, information that you gather throughout the year. I know that Mike did come out of pocket. A lot of bills had accumulated during the off season. A lot of vendors who were on strict cash only cash up front um, and said, this is about all we can do until you get these old bills covered. I heard from one corner of the paddock that Mike forked out almost $2 million to make good on bills from 2018 leading into the 2019 season. So that alone told me he is very serious about trying to keep this thing going even when he's not been able to fund it to the degree that was really needed. So for what I think is going to happen, Thomas, I think that Mike, having purchased a lot of IndyCar stuff, definitely believe that his major contribution will be in assets, and that is probably the extent of things, knowing that spending money is not going to be something that is going to take place. So I don't know if the best way to put it is the golden hard card or the golden headset type deal, but it sounds like Mike's major ability to help is with what he owns. Would definitely expect on the Steinbrenner side that finding money and or contributing family money will be as it was in the Harding Steinbrenner scenario, their major responsibility and also know that with Andretti and their ability to find money and 
broker business to business deals, that's also likely going to be a large part of what they bring on top of the excellent staff, technical knowledge, and so on. So I think that's where you're going to see the three sides really representing themselves in this new venture. Let's go to Ryan Ward, who says, Marshall, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the driver market, while openings are plentiful, is basically stagnant because everyone is waiting on spam. They have most likely two full-time seats available, and virtually anyone with talent who isn't currently under contract is in play and prefers those seats because they wouldn't have to bring any money and will actually get paid to drive. So my assumption is we aren't going to see anyone sign anywhere until Aero McLaren SP announces their two drivers. Am I correct? Well, you sent this in, Ryan, before Marcus Erickson was confirmed at Ganassi. So no foul there whatsoever. We also have our pal DJ who sent in something on the good old tweeters who said, so what seat is Spam looking to fill first, the five or the seven car? Any ideas on who drives for them next season? Hashtag me personally. I thought a Connor Daly Santino Ferrucci pairing would be a pretty good team. So coming back to your two questions, I think as I mentioned last week, knowing that Pato Award could be the perfect fit for what they're looking for as a lead driver in that per what our favorite Mexican Indy Lights champion told me during the Monterey weekend, he won't know his fate at Red Bull till the end of October, beginning of November. It would appear it's not leaning in the most positive direction. My guess is that, again, as I will share, I don't know what Spam is thinking of doing from a timeline standpoint, but if I were in their shoes, that's what I would do. Hey, uh, whether we announce someone today or next month, doesn't really matter. Uh, testing's not really a big thing for us right now. There is nothing that is going to change anything about what we do, whether we have a driver or t- both drivers locked in today or 30 days from now. So what I would suggest is the driver or drivers, they end up signing, knowing that Hinch could indeed stay if the explorations into finding a Honda home do not pan out as desired. The signing of one or two drivers, I think it's very much going to be a thing of best fit for 2020. I've shared that with you guys many times. I'm saying nothing new there. But the best fit part, maybe I, I'm going to drill into that for a moment here. I don't know if I've done that much. So when I was at Monterey for the season finale, was doing the usual thing of holding court. Keep in mind, sometimes I will hold court. Uh, most of the times it's me walking up to friends or whatever. They're holding court with a group of people telling, you know, solving the world's problems and telling everyone they're wrong uh, and they're right. Holding court a little bit with some friends in the paddock in the topic of spam driver signings and who held the keys, who was in charge, who was really going to be the person making those calls that came up. I was told repeatedly by a couple of good friends, folks very much in the know, very much in the know related to this team. 
both are telling me I was wrong in any assertion other than Sam Schmidt would be the person making the calls. Nope, not the case. Uh, Sam's the guy. Sam's going to be the one. Sam, Sam, Sam. I am not saying Sam Schmidt will have zero involvement, zero role, zero anything when it comes to picking drivers. But at least as I understand it, um, it would be false to say that my pal Sam is truly the only person dictating who will or won't drive. I know he plays a very large role in this, but the sole voice, the main voice, uh, I've been hearing and been fairly confident from the moment this relationship was announced with McLaren that McLaren would indeed have a very loud voice in driver signing. Have heard that the confirmation of Connor Daly no longer being considered. That that news may have been delivered by not Sam, not Rick Peterson, not someone at SPM. So provided that's accurate, that would tell me that McLaren does indeed have a pretty significant percentage of the driving decisions. They don't own a single percent of the team, so it's not a case of where they've bought a voice. But as I understand it, uh, McLaren may have been the one to deliver the news that uh, thank you, but we uh, were going in other directions. Heard that. Not saying it's fact, but I wouldn't be sharing it with you if I thought it was complete nonsense. The other aspect here, and this drills into your one of your main points, Ryan, it's about money. So as we know, as we've been told, McLaren's primary contribution to this relationship is sponsorship. They'll also be bringing some personnel. They'll be contributing on the technology side. But bluntly, it's money, it's dollars and cents. So I already have Arrow, which is bringing a lot of money, which is great. But McLaren's entry into this partnership comes with a, as we're told, fairly decent bank account you'd think that that would mean drivers would be hired and hired alone just say keep in mind that hinch who is a paid driver has partners that come to the table and help contribute am i saying hinch would not be driving for the team if it weren't for those sponsors no i'm not saying that at all but i am saying that hinch might be the the model for us to consider for at least one of the seats. And that being, if I can hire an excellent driver who also has, whatever the number is, $2 million, $3 million in sponsorship to bring from valuable partners, could be family money, who knows what. But if I can bring someone who's going to do what we want from the driving side and also increase our budget that I believe, which has been the SPM model for quite some time, at least with their second car, 
I would say that might be the place we need to look, guys. I think we need to accept the fact that if they can just straight up hire someone like a Pato Award who brings no money, but we know brings silly talent, a um, few others, again, we could throw in a variety of others where you go, super talented, definitely they're looking to get paid because they don't bring anything else. I think that could absolutely be the case for the, quote, lead entry. But I would be very surprised if the second entry is not one where that driver, very talented as well, but also has sponsors writing a check to make that happen. Knowing that Santino Ferrucci, for example, wasn't paid by Dale Coyne to drive. Uh, I do not believe he brought a full budget. I believe that Dale did contribute, as he often does, because he's a pretty amazing human being and has been successful in business. But someone like a Santino, where we have talent, we have speed, we have all those things, but we also have some sponsors. Um, I would not foresee spam turning down a funded driver. So to me, that's the take home. As for which seat being Phil DJ, the five or the seven car, I would say they are probably going to hold off on announcing anything until they have what they would consider their lead driver absolutely locked in. Just rehashing here quickly because the questions do come in. I know that my friend David Malsher, with quotes from Sam Schmidt at Portland, filed a story with Sam saying, James is our driver. No question, no anything. Um, not questioning the accuracy of that reporting at all. So again, there's nothing to do with David. David's dear friend, peerless at what he does. Just end a statement. Just always come back to the fact that we didn't hear anything from McLaren. And again, in terms of, of rumors that I've heard, I've heard that those quotes might have gone over by like the proverbial fart in church until, I shouldn't say until, when we see a formal press release with Arrow, McLaren, S, and P listed <laughs> and their voices spoken on driver A in the five car and driver B in the seven car. That's our deal for 2020. Until we see those things, I would just say hold off on using permanent ink on any driver being in those cars. Um, that's just a reality. Could it be Hinch? Absolutely. Knowing that Ganassi was taken off the board in terms of potential destinations, what does that leave? Where does that leave in Honda land? Obviously, there's coin. Don't know if that's a place he would seriously consider. There's obviously Ray Hall, which has become kind of the stampede for what could be its third entry. We know that that team, which has always been fond of money, it's not a negative, just a reality. Uh, they're not exactly willing to do bargain deals for anyone. Hey, we love you, Hinch. You're awesome. You're amazing. Because it's you, we're going to offer you absolute bargain basement rate to be in our third car. So tell your sponsors, even though we understand they might not even add up to a 
half season budget. Tell them, come on in. We're going to pay for the pleasure of having you in our third car. That's just not how Ray Hall does business. Again, nothing negative there. They're just not a Dale coin where Dale uses profits from his businesses to offset running costs. It's not how they work. So I believe if James and his sponsors and Honda can rally enough funding, then he could very well be in that third entry. Would also say that just based on things that I hear from smart folks who tell me these things, There's a lot of folks now who are even more worried, just strictly on the Honda side, folks that might be aligned with Honda or have something there. With the Ganassi seat gone, and again, no disrespect to coin, but still, there's still some stigma from the days of old of as to whether that's a front-running team or not. I would think that would be gone based on what Sebastian and Craig Hampson have been able to do. And this year, Michael Cannon and Santino have shown. But regardless, there's still some drivers in the paddock who don't think of coin as a place to go to be a championship contender. So if you take Andretti off the board, because they've got nothing. If you take Ganassi off the board, um, I don't really, as I mentioned a few times, I don't think they look at Hinch as someone that they covet in particular for whatever reason. If you take coin off the plate, who are we left with? Uh, we're left with Ray Hall, Edmund Lanigan racing in terms of a seat for him to fill. And I think he's going to be one of a few. I know of a few other drivers of the team is continuing to speak with. Don't know if it'll go any- go anywhere, but just at least interest being held. Uh, Myershank Racing, again, we, there's no question that Jack Harvey is going to be back there. So, yeah, um, don't be surprised if Hinch stays with Spam because that is indeed the best place for him to be next year and next year alone. But until we see the team, all members, Arrow, a little grumpy lately, um, definitely not one that felt that its name being associated with a naked driver was something that fit their corporate sensibilities. McLaren, which has been dead silent in stating anything about drivers in terms of we like this guy, like that guy. They've mentioned Zach Brown mentioning they might've spoken with certain people. Gilda Farron might've even mentioned conversations here, there, but in terms of we're leaning in this direction or we'll let you know by this date. They've done none of that. Uh, The only thing we've heard is Sam's quotes to David about, yes, Hinch will be here next year, and I'm fairly confident if he could go back in time and not say those things, he would, just to fall in line with all the other partners. So, yeah, uh, this is an intriguing one. But I would not say, to close here, that other signings are being held up or are delayed in any way to see how the Aero McLaren SP thing shakes out. Just mention random stuff. I was sitting in uh, 
medical facility yesterday with my lady while she was undergoing chemo treatments. And because it's something where you're truly just sitting in a chair, you know, I'm sitting in a chair doing nothing. My wife's sitting in a chair for hour for an hour or many hours at a time at each of these visits as they uh, inject all kinds of chemicals into her body. There's truly nothing to do. I mean, it's absolute iPad time, browse your phone, listen to music, but it's just you're counting down the, the minutes or hours. And so got a text from an IndyCar team owner saying, hey, what do you know about a budget for this? What do you know about going rates for that? What do you know about this driver, that driver? And just sharing, again, I don't know if this is a revelation or not. It really shouldn't be. But this kind of stuff, I believe, is fairly normal. I think Robin Miller, who's been very much of a mentor to me over the years, I think I, I don't know if I learned it from him or just picked it up from him, but Miller's on the phone every day. Uh, as I am, but with team owners, with drivers, and 90-plus percent of our conversations never see the light of day. It's mostly background information. What do you know about this? What about, hey, have you heard? We're looking for an engineer. Who do you know? Or, hey, uh, I love my engineer, but I hear another team's going after him. What do you know? Or, I hate my engineer. (laughs) Um, Who do you know that's available? Or, I'm an engineer, and I'm looking for work. Who do you know? Or, again, just run down the list. It's always interesting to just, you know, be living your normal life and, you know, just engage in a conversation with someone in the paddock, as I did yesterday with a team owner, who's just looking for a little bit of outside information or outside perspective, a little bit of a debate on certain drivers they might consider if they were looking to do either an extra car or if they're looking to maybe already thinking that a mid-season change next year or an early season change might be required next year if a particular driver doesn't live up to expectations. It's always interesting to see how these things play out. So just coming back to this question of spam and the remaining silly season, how things might fall, it's certainly the big one left to solve, but... There's a lot of other movement that will be going on that has nothing to do with them. I mean, Ed Carpenter racing, very convinced that, you know, Ed Jones is not going to be back. Ed himself told me, you know, he's got some options looking around. Uh, Don't know if the Scuderia Corsa relationship is going to continue there. That's one for sure. Uh, I mean, we could just go alphabetically at AJ Foyt racing no idea who's going to be there. I know that there was something tweeted out by our friend TV's Dave first, that a handshake deal between Tony Kanon and the AJ Foyt racing team is in place. Just go ahead and share that, you know, handshake deals are awesome. They mean all kinds of things, you know, those things tend to follow Hard with hard contracts and then announcements that things are done. That could very well be where things end up. Just sharing some ability to look at the calendar and say, I believe that information came out towards the end of September. We're now, what, 
nine, ten days in to October. And, you know, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, regardless, we know the Foyt team's going to have at least one seat to fill, if not two. We know that Andretti is buttoned up with its five full-timers. We are expecting, have been expecting, have been saying for a good while, Myershank Racing is expected to return and be their new old partner. The uh, Andretti Technologies relationship shifting from Harding Steinbrenner over to MSR. We know that Carlin, definite question mark, and at least one seat. Know that I'm rehashing some of the stuff that I've offered the last couple weeks, but I also know that Every week I get asked to kind of sort of run through things yet again, so more than happy to do so. Max Chilton, no clue as to what his confirmed schedule will be next year. Could it be one race alone at the Indy 500 in what I guess we would term the third Carlin entry? Or could it be ovals only, part-time, full-time? Sounds like it might be. Not an option for Max, but we know Max should factor in some way. Just don't know how much. Charlie Kimball's trying to stay there. Also know that there are many, many other drivers where if we're talking Honda World, Ray Hall's third entry, which they hope to make happen, is the lightning rod for many. I would say that for those in some way, shape, or form aligned in the Chevy world, that Carlin would indeed be the lightning rod for opportunities there. So could that be two full-time entries needing to be filled if Max just does the 500 and a third? Could it be Max part-time road courses? Charlie doing the ovals in that car, leaving one full-time to fill? Again, we don't know, but that's a quality team in need of some answers. The Ganassi team just expanded to three with Marcus. Definitely believe they are still looking at possibly doing a fourth part-time with Oliver Askew, but Oliver also has options elsewhere. Coin, not 100% sure, not 50% sure if Santino is going to be back in that car. Um, Would love to see him there, but don't know. Would I be... Vastly shocked if he ended up at McLaren. One or more of his success-authoring team members from this year at Coin going with him? I don't know. Wouldn't It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Dragon Speed's another one. We're not exactly sure how big their schedule is going to be next year. Uh, team owner Elton Julian... In a story we did, I don't know, maybe a month ago, said they're aiming for 10 races with Ben Hanley being in the car for a decent number of them. Ben's like family to Elton uh, and the other leadership at the team, uh, but also from conflicts-wise with some other racing that Ben's doing in sports cars, uh, possibly just the desire to do a few more races. Team could be looking at some other options, driver-wise, to complement Ben when he's not in the car. We already spoke about Ed Carpenter racing. Hunkos, I know Ricky will be doing his best to get all the cars fixed and updated. 
after the expensive month of May, but I don't know of anything that he has going to be on the grid for St. Pete. Uh, obviously, we've spoken about Ray Hall quite a bit, and Team Penske is all buttoned up there. So, some options, Foyt being the standout one, along with Carlin, along with Ray Hall in an expanded role with a third entry. We know that there could still be a little bit of something going on with Ganassi, maybe a part-time entry there. Carpenter as well. A lot, lot more questions and answers right now, as is often the case in IndyCar. So definitely love, <laughs> definitely love whatever is going to happen uh, on the spam front. But I would say that you probably have a lot, a lot more drivers who are not so much holding out and waiting for spam's decision on whether they're going to get to drive for them and just have a lot of people saying, hey, I've already been down the pipeline with Carlin, Foyt, Carpenter, whomever, and I'm going to keep digging there. I'm going to go to Pete Hernandez next. says, hey, Marshall, is reading an article on Race's website that included some photos of the Toyota TS050 LMP1 engine, which coincidentally happens to be a twin-turbo 2.4-liter V6. says, given that the engine shares displacement and cylinder configuration with IndyCar's next-generation engine, do you think Toyota could repurpose this engine for IndyCar and become the third engine supplier we've all been waiting for? I believe the answer is absolutely not, Pete, unfortunately. One thing about the FIA, WEC, and ACO LMP1 rules is while 2.4 liters and six cylinders and two turbos is what Toyota has chosen for their TSO 50 prototype, that's not a spec decision. They could have gone with something bigger, smaller, four cylinders, eight cylinders, one turbo, you name it. Things, at least under the current rules, which are going away here at the end of the year, they chose what they want and made it. That's awesome. Unfortunately, with what IndyCar is going to continue to do for 2022 with their 2.4 liter twin turbo V6, it's going to be another paint by the numbers exercise. This is the maximum angle for the valves. This is the maximum this. This is the minimum that. Very heavily restricted options on how the motor can be created. So, I'd love to see Toyota's motor. But two issues. One, it conforms to a very thin rule book, which doesn't jive with what IndyCar is doing. Another thing, too, which is just a dynamic, is with the LMP1 hybrid rules, the internal combustion engine in all the cars that have competed in that class since it came uh, to fruition have not relied too heavily on that internal combustion engine to make power. So with where IndyCar is going, we're looking at an expectation for a minimum 800-ish, 850 horsepower to start in 22. These new motors, even though they're going to be heavily spec in terms of, again, I don't mean truly 100% spec, but just not a vast amount of come up with whatever you want. The cool thing about this 
which this is where the extra power is going to come from. We think it's going to be at least a hundred more horsepower bigger than the current motors to start is it is an all new design. It's not just slightly larger. Current one is 2.2 liters of V6 and twin turbos. So it's not just going up 200 cc's that's going to bring 100 plus horsepower. It's a fact that Chevy and Honda will get to go back to the drawing board and say, you know, <laughs> now that we have a chance to do this over again, and we have slightly different dimensions here and there, but most of all freedoms to apply new designs, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I believe camshafts, for example, and I could, this could be falling out of my head incorrectly, but I'm not sure <laughs> cams have been an area of development in this current IndyCar engine formula. So despite the ability to change many other things every other year, uh, there's some things that really are kind of old in terms of design and limiting. So this is the thing that both Ilmore Engineering, contracted by Chevy, and Honda Performance Development are really looking forward to. All right, we get to make more power. Most of all, we get to design a new block, new heads, new crank, new this, new that, new everything. And so from that updated creativity, there's the expectation that this new and bigger horsepower number is going to arrive. If we switch back to LMP1 and Toyota's motor, Pete, they quote it at about 500 horsepower. Do we ever expect that to be accurate? No, it's usually always higher, but it's never been this seven to 800 horsepower raging monster with 100, 200, 300 hybrid powertrain number getting it to say 11,000 to 1100 horsepower, the electric power that is captured and then deployed. That's always been about half, <laughs> maybe even more of its power structure. So at least with how things have been done, although this motor matches where IndyCar is going in terms of displacement, cylinder count and turbo count, it's never been this big glowing, exploding nuclear device that it would need to have, that it, it would need it to be in IndyCar to play in the same sandlot as Chevy and Honda. So the repurposing side, again, could it? Not really. Architecture-wise, they would indeed need to start with a brand new design that complied to all of IndyCar's dimensions everything that says it must be this width, this length, this height, this angle, this there's enough in the rules, Pete, to where, unfortunately, you couldn't just slightly modify the current one. They would have to go brand new. Uh, and even if there was a exception made saying, okay, you could bring it, they would have to redevelop the living poop out of it because it would need to make an extra 50% horsepower 60% horsepower than it already does just to meet the minimum of where the others would be. And that in and of itself would be very, very expensive. Let's go to Paul Hirsch. Says Marshall in the event that the aero screen needs to be removed during a crash. Is it something that can be cut out or removed? Going back to last week's podcast about a European team interested in IndyCar. Let's present it. Pre- present. 
I'm making new words again. Let's pretend it's Campos Racing. As a fan, I can understand why to choose IndyCar because of the tracks and close racing. Do you think it's a negative in recruiting teams that since the merger 11 years ago, that only Chip Ganassi Racing, Team Penske, and Andretti Autosport are the ones to host, hoist the driver's championship? Go with the last one first. Uh, I don't think it's a negative, Paul. I just think it's reality. Um, you know, I know that by the numbers, you know, off the top of my head, what there's 10 IndyCar teams, 11 IndyCar teams, something like that. And maybe I'm thinking more full timers, but there's roughly 10 teams of those 10, three have dominated the past 11 years. Let's just say this decade. Um, I think if we expand that out to what 32 NBA teams, 30 ish NFL teams, we're looking at approximately one third of the teams have been dominant. Don't hold me to it. I realize that there's surely, you know, a bit of a outlier in terms of who's won a super bowl, who's won the, uh, championship in major league baseball who's taken home the world series i would just say that by and large we have some pretty strong teams year after year not saying that those strong teams always win but you know there are some perennial underdogs that never make it or when they do it's oh my goodness look at what happened it's a big shock But for the most part, I think in the majority of sports that I follow or know of, um, you know, when I'm watching, when I watched the UFC event last weekend in Australia, um, the headliner, Israel Adesanya and Robert Whitaker, these are two of the best. Whitaker has been the champ for a couple years, been out due to injury, but you know, again, this is a guy who you expect to be at or near the top. He ended up losing. Adesanya won. Great. That kid's somewhat new, but we can see and expect him to be at the forefront of that class for a long time, that weight class. Just not surprised that three of the oldest and most successful teams continue to get better and be more successful. And I don't think that's any different Paul, then in Formula One, then in the WEC, then in IMSA, um, run across all the various racing series. NASCAR, and I know Furniture Row was an amazing story. There's always a chance for a breakthrough, but by and large, we're looking to usually the same teams to be at the front of this championship fight. So I don't know how a new European team would look at IndyCar and say what they have going on there with their big three is so vastly different than what we've experienced in GP3, Formula 2, whatever, whatever. I think that's just the normal dynamic in sports, man. Uh, You get your Patriots. You get your, we just had the Eagles. They rose up, but they've been, again, pretty strong contenders for many years. You get your Steelers, you get your Giants. I know they're a raging dumpster fire um, recent years, but 
Anyways, I look back there and say, okay, those kind of sort of fit expectations. If it were the Jacksonville Jaguars to be in the Super Bowl, that would surprise the poop out of me. Uh, if it were, you know, one of my two uh, home state or home area teams, the Raiders to be there, that would be a big surprise. Um, I don't know. If it were to turn off those teams, I would say that any interested teams would be a surprise, Paul, because it would just tell me they're not super connected to reality. One of the few examples where I have heard this actually being a thing, a legitimate thing, though, was in LMP1 racing, LMP900 before that, in sports cars with Audi at Le Mans, owning for the vast majority the 2000s at Circuit de la Sarthe, and also being super strong in the early uh, 2010s, the early teens. Uh, I've definitely heard of some manufacturers, even privateers, saying we're not even bothering going there because they spend so much money. There's no way we can take down this one big Goliath. In IndyCar, we've had these Goliaths for a while. They're the known standard. I wouldn't think that would uh, really be a prohibitive thing to your first question. Yes. Uh, the screen itself can be cut away. There are tools that the AMR safety team have and have been using. They've been developed specifically to cut the screen away if needed. And they also have the, uh, quote jaws of life, whatever that specific device is called, which I don't know what it is to cut away the halo if needed. Uh, those are, two things that they have been doing, studying, preparing. Um, That is the absolute plan. If they got to do it just like they would cut away part of the tub or the roll hoop, whatever, to get out of driver, depending upon the crash, that is a big part of the preparatory work, I am told, by IndyCar. Up next is Matthew Featherman. says, MP, after listening to the podcast with Brian Barnhart, it sounds like he almost likely may not be needed after the Andretti an HSR merger is done and dusted. Any thoughts on where else he could end up? Another team? Maybe back in IndyCar management? Thing I've heard is there might be a role for Brian to continue as Colton's race strategist. Seems like, unfortunately, that might be the only major option for him right now. Also realizing that we are, what, half a month or so out from the season finale. Still a lot of things happening uh, that have yet to be completed, as we just discussed in terms of silly season. Who might go where? Who might do what? What needs could arise? I think the really positive thing to come out of 2019 in particular, but also last year as well, just a newfound respect for Brian in his ability as a person running a racing team. He certainly had some help. Uh, There's some good folks who helped made everything happen at HSR along with Mr. Barnhart there. But I would say, I think his general reputation in the paddock, whatever it was beforehand, as IndyCar president, IRL president, competition guy, chief steward, whatever negatives there might have been, whatever negatives there were, I think folks just 
cast him in a new light by and large. And so while he has deep relationships with everybody in the paddock due to his, whatever it was, 20 years or so at IndyCar, would definitely say, I think folks are now realizing, ooh, this is a a talent to consider on the team side now. What I fear, Matthew, and I think you picked up on Brian's tone, there's a fear that he might have been in the perfect scenario at HSR. And while it helped elevate him and cast him in that new light, it's not as if there's three or four other similar roles waiting for him at other teams. Could we see if if a Ray Hall goes out to three cars, if Carlin, who knows, expands out, if Carpenter expands out, could we see a scenario where there might be a need for an additional managerial layer that Brian could fulfill? Yeah, I think so. What I don't know is whether he would be happy and fulfilled in that role. Sometimes happiness and fulfillment really isn't an option in our primary jobs. I'm not one of them, so I'm not speaking from any kind of position right now and saying that, but I have had situations in the past where I went to work for Team X because I needed the income and I needed to keep paying bills and it's all that I had or all that my talent warranted and it sucked (laughs) and those teams while helping me to pay my bills certainly did not get the best version of me because for whatever reason they sucked. I sucked. We all sucked together, whatever it was. We certainly see this happens every year in IndyCar and every other racing series where, for whatever the reasons, not enough budget, therefore teams not able to do as much, not able to succeed as often. The team needs a paying driver just to keep things afloat, and maybe they aren't particularly good. Therefore, you know you're always battling for 19th place. It's hard to get the best out of folks in those scenarios. Same, I would imagine, for Brian as well. He's in a perfect scenario here, although they were super cash-strapped. He had the freedom, the opportunity to use his creativity to make things happen, keep the ship afloat. A lot of positivity that came from that. Would plugging in to be the manager over the new third entry at wherever, potentially with a driver who isn't super exciting, with a team that you know on a really good day you're going to be celebrating a top 12 because you were 12th, Yeah, I would imagine would be a pretty big letdown coming from the heights of winning the season finale, winning at Coda, and just being celebrated for making so much out of so little. So even if something does pop up, Matthew, I don't know where Brian falls in the I need to earn a lot of money situation. Don't know those things. I just know that It's almost like the situation where you see the new singer or the new recording artist that has a global smash from their first album at 20 years old or whatever. And then they spend the rest of their lives chasing that to try and find that again. You feel happy for them that they had that. I at least at times feel a little bit bad knowing that at such a young age they had this happen 
and they're probably never going to be that fulfilled again. That's a long life to live without that happening again. You, you lose touch and forget how good things were the longer time goes by. Brian's obviously not young. He's been doing this for a super long time, but this is the first time he's run a racing team and had great success with it. So for however much longer he wants to continue in the sport or needs to, I just hope it isn't one of those scenarios where the first time ended up being the best time and everything else afterwards is a bit of a letdown. Sorry, am I bumming you out? I'm bumming myself out here. We're going to go to someone who, if this is indeed your real last name, it is awesome. I don't believe I've read one of your questions on the show before as well. So if I have, I apologize. And if not, welcome to Connor Clinkenbeard, who says with the recent news of Connor Daly being out of contention for the number seven spam seat, I'm wondering if a high-end part-time gig like splitting the third Ganassi ride or in this case, it might be a fourth Ganassi ride with Oliver Askew or Ed Jones or something like that might be an option for Connor. I remember him saying something earlier this year on his IndyCar podcast in reference to Pato Award situation that a part-time ride with one of the best teams is very valuable and hard to turn down. I would say, Connor, that Carlin Racing would be pretty darn wise to try and work with whatever amount of U.S. Air Force money and any other sponsors that Connor has to sign him up as their lead driver. Certainly the not the first or the millionth person to say that probably. Connor is officially the people's champion in IndyCar, just as my friend Ryan Eversley, who is the co-host of the Dinner with Racers podcast, is IMSA's official people's champion. Connor's also really darn good in a race car. I would say that knowing that Carlin is moving into their third season in IndyCar, knowing that Connor doesn't have a full budget to bring, but they have a desire. He has a desire. I don't know where things fell off the rails at spam. I'm disappointed, not disappointed. I don't know if they would have looked at Connor as anything more than a one-year solution, and that's not what he needs. Um, all right, this is just the be really honest time. When I was sitting down chatting with Marcus at Monterey, I shared the same exact opinion. Uh, hey, you know, I know that you could potentially come back here. I don't know if that is something that, you know, if they were to say yes that is something where they're looking at you as someone to build around for the future. Or if they're looking at, ah, hey, he can bring some money and help us, you know, just get our selves even more ready for 2021 when we can go after some bigger free agents. Don't know if Connor would have been in anything more than a one year stopgap scenario. And that doesn't help anybody. If anything, it maybe sets him back because that's frankly about all he's had, except for that. He did have a year with Coin, obviously. He had a year with Foyt. Neither team was really in a place at that point to make much out of it, but I would rather see him with a Carlin, which we know is an underdog, which we know is building, which needs a really super scrappy fighter like young Mr. Daly, uh, than 
say many other options they might consider. So I would just say here, Connor, that could I see him stepping into a part-time role somewhere? Sure. Would I say I'd rather, if I was advising him, really lock in on making something happen with Carlin instead of trying to bounce around a variety of options and never really giving full concentration to making that one happen? No. Uh, I would push for what I know is best. If nothing else, we know he should be in the Indy 500 next year with some great sponsor support. We would also expect him to be in some other races too because it seems like every year someone breaks an ankle, riding their bicycle, uh, guy's money runs out, a variety of things happen where there's a need for Connor Daly. If he's unable to find a great full-season deal, uh, I'd rather him just focus on controlling his own destiny with a great 500 ride and then be available for more to try and make more things happen than just settle for a smaller part-time deal. The other thing you mentioned here in terms of uh, you know, a part-time thing in a Ganassi seat, I don't know if that's something they really look at Connor to do. No disrespect to Connor, but I don't know if they really look at him as a solution. Um, going where you wanted is a pretty important thing, like we mentioned about Brian Barnhart. Uh, so I think Connor is in a place now where he has a little bit more control where he can end up. He doesn't have a full budget to truly author where he goes, but I'd rather not see him settle for something small. I'd rather see him push for something big that he's, I believe, deserving of, at least deserving in terms of demonstrating what he can do. Let's go to our pal, Jameen Tuttle, winner of our torontomotorsports.com little gift bag. He says, pics and video I've seen of the new aero screen in action last week do not warrant the reaction that some seem to have. When F1 debuted its halo, it was weird. Nearly two seasons later, the racing hasn't changed. It's proved its worth in a few situations. And F1 did fine. It says, some IndyCar fans need to take a deep breath. It's going to be fine. If it saves one life, it's worth it. As always, I ask for you all to share your thoughts and opinions, not just send in questions. Um, I don't disagree with anything you've said, Jameen. The comment I've heard from Will Power, Simon Pagano, and Ryan Hunter Ray in the phone calls I've had with them after testing the aero screen, each one has, in some way, said the same thing. We expect it to be completely like F1's Halo. It's going to have a lot of folks saying it's ugly. It's going to be the death of the sport and the world is going to collapse as a result. And then within a few months of seeing it on track regularly, it's just no longer going to be a topic of conversation or at least regular conversation. And not too long after that, it's just going to be like part of the furniture. (laughs) It just... You walk by it every day. It's there the whole time, but your eyes just kind of tune it out because it's so familiar. I would expect something like that to happen here as well. I know that someone sent in a question, and I apologize because I, when I was gathering all the questions on social media here on Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit, I actually couldn't find it, so I apologize. But someone asked, 
or post something about IndyCar and should they have in their photos from the initial test allowed head-on shots to be released uh, because the shots from the side, while not everybody liked it or those, uh, there weren't many negative comments, but especially from the head-on shots, it looked so wide. And did IndyCar make a big mistake by failing to restrict what images it let out? And um, again, I apologize whomever sent that in and I couldn't find it, but uh, the quick takeaway was no, because that viewpoint is coming from one of believing IndyCar thinks it's ugly, thinks it's bad, visually abhorrent, and then through incompetence failed to cut out the images it felt were uncomplimentary. Um, They don't see it as ugly and all the really super bad things. They see it as I see it, which is as a safety device, not a fashion accessory, which I've said a couple times in the last week or two. They don't look at it and go, oh, well, it's going to save lives, but man, it's ugly. They look at it and say, we're really proud of that because we have shored up the last big glaring hole in our safety game. And it should absolutely transform driver safety. So coming back to Jameen's point here, viewpoints of it obviously differ. For fans who have no attachment to the drivers, who just look at this as a sport for entertainment, entertain me, period. Uh, Drivers are cool. I have some favorites. I follow some on social media and yada, yada. But, you know, they're no different to me than Cam Newton or Steph Curry. They're an athlete. They're an entertainer. I enjoy what they do, but, you know, I don't really care about them beyond how they entertain me. The Halo in some of those instances has certainly been the worst thing. The arrow screen, I should say, has been the worst thing. Got it. Okay. I mean, that's, that's one take for others. It's, this is a necessary thing. Uh, For some, it is a necessary thing for others. It is viewed as a necessary evil. The evil part being, but it's ugly. Again, I probably view this more from the standpoint that the folks at IndyCar view it as whether I love how it looks or hate how it looks, I view its need as the thing that overrides pretty much everything else. I know also referencing back to something from last week's show, I did mention if they had just come up with the most ridiculous thing ever, I think certainly I'd be saying, what is that? That isn't, I mean, that's, it's not safe. It's not this, it's not that there is really something wrong here. I just don't see that here. Therefore it hasn't been a thought. Uh, it, Design-wise, is a pretty amazing thing uh, that's being integrated into a car that was never designed to have it. So I think, like you, Jameen, I'm going to look at this 
in, I don't know, probably after Indy next year, I doubt it's really going to stand out that much. I'm sure there will be some things I dislike about it. Not so much the device itself, but some other aspects that I really enjoy that will very likely be harder to observe and appreciate. As a former race engineer, someone who did some uh, modest amount of race car driving, someone who's actually done a lot of driver coaching throughout the years. Driver's hands, those are the things that I'm constantly looking at. Whether it's ovals in the corners, road courses in the corners, constantly looking at driver's hands. If I'm just trackside or if it's on television, those hands reveal a lot about what's going on with the car. Not everything's a big old drifty slide. That's after the problems happened. It's watching to see driver management of the car with their hands to prevent those things while still going ridiculously fast. Will I be able to see those hand movements as clearly or easily? I don't think so. That could be a bit of an issue. Uh, In terms of ability to discern who's doing what, how a car is handling without seeing big evidence of crazy understeer, crazy oversteer. Just a couple things like that where you go, okay, there's some, some points of reference that I'm accustomed to. Those might be changing or going away. I, I will have to adapt to that as well. Nonetheless, I'm with you, man. I think it's going to be a non-visual issue, hopefully for many who do take issue with it, like the halo before too long. Paul Trahan, and I'm not sure if that if that's Trahan or Trahan, let me know, Paul. Says MP in an alternate reality, you're being asked to write the sequel to the smash hit movie driven. Thank you. Who would win the championship this time? Jimmy Bly or Bo Brandenburg? Hashtag me personally, and I learned today that my friend Kevin Lee on his uh, radio show with Kurt Cavan used me personally, so I love it. He says, me personally, I'm going to, I'm going complete underdog comeback and give it to Mamo Moreno. That's a great call right there. Uh, Paul, I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go Jimmy Bly, and I apologize. This is super predictable, but if you look at how simple Driven was set up. It's the good all American guy who's overcome adversity and looking at the very last minute, he wins the race against Bo Brandenburg, a German guy with kind of a name that isn't, doesn't seem super German. I don't know. Um, and, but yeah, so he's the foreigner. He's bad. Um, I mean, we can't expect a lot more from, the Sly Stallone type sequel. Uh, even if I'm the one being asked to write it, I know that it's going to have to have some sort of really sappy angle to it. Um, maybe though, there could be some sort of expendables thing where, or Rambo, some sort of gratuitous violence between drivers, just punching each other. I don't know. Um, I think there might be something there, but still, even if we revisit in a sequel almost 20 years later, a now kind of overweight, balding Jimmy Bly, 
working at a gas station, you know, doing, driving a, I think driving some sort of 24 hour tow truck, right? Of course, it's going to be out kind of middle America, pick this, pick the town, pick the state, Montana, Iowa, Des Moines. No, no, it's a little too, a little too domesticated. It's going to be something that, you know, the movie is going to open with a really long shot, dusty country road. Then there's going to cut to the woman, some sort of, you know, youngerish woman, you know, maybe in her late teens, early twenties, blown tire, some sort of problem that she couldn't easily fix. Although I, again, I think if this is going to be a Stallone script, even though I'm being asked to write it and my sensibility would be to come up with some sort of car trouble that nobody could fix. It would still probably be a tire or something like that. That Stallone in his mind at 70 years old or whatever probably hasn't updated himself to realize that women can change a blown, you know, tire and put on a spare wheel and tire set, put the donut on or, you know, it'd probably be something where in his mind there has to be kind of a male savior type thing. Jimmy Bly drives out. We don't know it's Bly though. We just see and driven to long shot, downward sloping, long kind of country road. See this tow truck go whistling by quickly though, right? You know, really flying big speed, dust and rocks being kicked up, maybe a little bit of sideways stuff, just something demonstrating that, despite it being what we would think is a slow and lumbering vehicle, it's being driven at a high rate of speed. Clearly there's someone special behind the wheel pulls up. Of course you get the low shot, the worm's eye view. You see the door open. You see some sort of, I don't know, cowboy boot type thing. Step out, just selling the fact that we're kind of Midwestern something. Don't see who, just see the boot. You see the kind of maybe yellow door, whatever colored door, whatever folks would consider to be undoubtedly a little wrecker, little tow truck there. See the person walk up to the car, but again, you don't get the full height of the person. It's still low. Coming up to that car, you see the flat tire. You see the camera kind of raise up, lean in the window as if you're, now, from the perspective of the tow truck driver, asks, you know, ma'am, how can I help? Does the routine, changes the tire. Finally, we see the camera pans up. We see that familiar face of Jimmy Bly. Again, balding. Still got that glint, though. I'm forgetting if there was some sort of trademark sunglasses or something in the original Driven, but... Maybe there's an artifact, something that he has on that reminds us some some sort of visual link back to the first movie to go, ah, oh, that's the guy. We're going to fast forward way to the end just because I don't have time to run through the whole script here that I'm kind of pulling out of my ass while I'm discussing. But um, we're going to find out in the end that the young woman whose car needed help that he helped find on the side of the road. She didn't call him. Right, He just was driving down, doing his race car driving thing, and the only vehicle he had, a tow truck, for the gas station he works for, happens upon 
this young woman who needs help. Late teens, very early 20s. We find out, of course, that's his daughter. That's how these movies work, right? It's his daughter. And maybe it was, what was her name? Estella Warren or something like that. Their kid, who knows? And within this, you know, she's now gone on. She's started the F series, not the W series, but the F series, the all-female series. She's the CEO of that somehow. Uh, Little do we know, because it hasn't been revealed until towards the end of the movie, that his daughter is actually competing in the F series course under a different last name. So no one would know that she's the daughter of the CEO of that, but somehow he gets back to racing and, you know, he wins something, but realizes who knows, maybe it's the race where he's potentially vying for another championship again with Bo Brandenburg. And I know that I'm changing things a little bit here in the answer, but maybe after featuring, maybe winning the F series, his daughter gets a ride, an opportunity with a rival team in the season finale, where again, Bly and Brandenburg resuming this two-decade-old rivalry are going to come down and vie for another championship. But maybe, just maybe, I shouldn't say maybe exactly, because this is a Stallone move I'd be told to do in the script. Jimmy Bly's daughter has a chance to win, but of course, what's the pressure point in the script? He needs to stay in front of her to win the championship, but he realizes since he was an absent father, never knew he had a daughter. Maybe he did. Haven't figured that part out yet. He and Estella, provided that's her name and I've gotten it right, broke up badly, and maybe she said, leaving I'm pregnant and having your child. And, you know, he said, oh, you're, you're, that's just, you're making that up to make me feel bad. Never knowing it was actually true. Again, these contrivances are easy to work out. Um, he realizes for his own glory to show the world after being forgotten and finding his way back, haven't figured out how he's found his way back. Maybe Paulie will ask for more in the next Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, and I'll pull that out of my backside, too. Should also mention Rocky is laying to my right in the sun. He's a California cat, so he's sunning himself. Not, hasn't shown me his ass this episode, so thanks, pal. Um, He could stay in front of her, fight her off, make sure that he wins the championship. Or knowing, feeling guilty, knowing that having had this success in the F series. If he were to not allow his daughter to win, but if he didn't block and continue to overly fight and just drive ruthlessly to stay in front of her, that her victory could actually propel her career in IndyCar, become the successor, carry on the family tradition, even though he didn't know he had a daughter until the very end. It's probably the starting line. Oh, yes, waiting to pull off on the grid, noting that the young woman he helped is in the series now in this finale, but finally making that connection. Estella Warren comes up on the grid, just he's about to pull off and says, Jimmy, our daughter, I don't know what her name is, I need your suggestion, that's your daughter. And of course the big reveal and the flashback, a big flashback to the 
driving down the country road and then flashback 20 years earlier to the scene that never happened in the original driven but of course you know a little bit of digital work to make him young and her young and whatever and that throwaway line i'm pregnant but you'll never know your your daughter all that comes flooding in his tears his eyes well up with tears he gets the command just roll off he doesn't have time to process this goes throughout the entire race at wherever it happens to be another plot angle we have to figure out gets to the end and again realizes that while he could just fight and fight and fight maybe you know not just being conflicted this entire race but still being fast even though he's a little overweight and bald sorry i I might be inserting myself a little bit in the plot line here although i'm not bald but it's coming um over defends maybe puts her off in the dirt a couple times crowd oh boo and whatever but hey he's back we'll get conflicts all over the place realizes that if, if he just fights her fair at least talent will reward the finer of the two realizes that you know she is indeed a better driver than i am realizes that she just has him has the goods has him in her sights rather than try and take her off the road again he just lets a pass happen naturally she goes on wins the race he loses the championship because he needed the first place points but in victory lane post-race celebration he finally embraces her as his daughter celebrates her tells the world because only he and her and mom knew about it and that's the big feel-good story and possibly some sort of teaser right i mean every stallone movie is just built for a sequel except for driven apparently until now 20 years later um some sort of driven three the next generation something his their daughter could she be the one also possibly again maybe we find out oh we got it her boyfriend soon to be husband getting married the two weeks after the race Bo Brandenburg's son huh whoa husband and wife the next generation fighting over IndyCar championships in Driven 3 and we fade to black Paul I don't know man I'm not saying this is a good idea I'm saying these are horrible ideas but together packaged in a 90-minute film like the original Driven, this is all kind of horrific awesome. So just let me know how to get a hold of Stallone because I think we have something here. We have something bad, but we have something here. We're going to jump to Darren Dubois as we start to ramp down here, who says, MP, who will take over the Harding Racing Building on Main Street and Speedway? I do not know, Darren. I actually need to ring a couple friends who I refer to as my Speedway Indiana real estate agents, folks who let me know what's going on there on the property side, who's moving into what, who's moving out of what. So I don't know. Not sure. Not sure. I do know that that building was once looked upon by Andretti Autosport as a possible destination for expansion. So part of me wonders if, That could still be a thing. I don't honestly know, but I do need to find out. 
Keith Lee. All right. One of the reasons I love my podcast is the multitude of questions that come in. Some of them not about racing like this one. Keith says, George actually said GPS. I think you mean GSP. George Saint-Pierre versus Khabib Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov. I'm never going to get that right. At a catchweight fight, who wins? I would say Khabib all day. Uh, Having watched GSP's rise all the way through his final match, I thought that he was phenomenal at his in his era. He was just amazing. Not a finisher. Way too many lay and pray matches. Way too many. All right, just going to grind you out over three rounds, five rounds, and get the win. But I'm never truly trying to win in terms of finishing you in a combative sport. Uh, Khabib, good Lord, that guy is always trying to end the night super early. So I know that GSP is a bit of a physical uh, just phenomenon and could be by no means as someone you'd look at and say, oh, that guy's just a destroyer. But his technique, his intensity, his ferocity, just, yeah, uh, two totally different fighters. And while I think GSP would have an advantage in terms of stand up, I mean, getting that fight on the ground, which is where both did so much of their work. Yeah, Khabib really strikes me as someone who, yeah, GSP, even in his prime, GSP would not want to deal with. Uh, let's go to Nathan Bart. Says MP, given the differences in controls for ovals and road courses, such as weight jacker and push to pass, do drivers have two different steering wheels for ovals and street courses? Are all the buttons always there, but sometimes disabled, or are they just reconfigured between the two? He also, like many of you, said best wishes for you and your queen and your new home. Thank you so much, Nathan, and everyone who sent in those kind notes. Truly depends. Some teams have multiple wheels that they, as you mentioned, uh, use in different environments. If you think of, I'll just say, the Indy 500, it's not uncommon for drivers to have both sides, but also often, just in terms of help on the right side of the wheel, to have some sort of custom molded piece to help them in turning. So they're not having to grip the steering wheel with their hand and fingers hard uh, or or solely. Actually have, as we hear Rosie in the background, jumping up on crazy stuff in the office. They actually have a built-up hand-formed piece that sits on top of their index finger, knuckle, uh, thumb. It's basically a hard lip. And so they're pushing up to turn compared to grasping the wheel hard and twisting their wrist to do a lot of that. Uh, That's pretty common for an oval. Uh, Not something we would necessarily see as much of or to that same high degree on every steering wheel for a road or street course. Some drivers want them the entire year everywhere they go. Others don't. Some teams, because they are (laughs) not inexpensive, tend to work with one steering wheel. 
I would say most have two, or if they have a two-car team, at least one spare that could be used. Some teams have two. Uh, straight up road and street course, one more for ovals. As you mentioned, some have more buttons or less. In some instances, based on a team's finances, they again, might have one and deactivate or remove certain things that aren't in use. So there's no single practice. Money definitely influences uh, pretty much answers to everything. Let's go to Jordan Darwin. Jordan really liked this question. He said, MP, biggest winless driver in 2019 that disappointed. He says, would it be Ryan Hunter Ray winless after two victories in 2018? Led 90 laps at Texas, but zero in total at every other round in 19. Graham Rahal, two winless years after Ryan Hunter Ray added a teammate that was supposed to help the team. Actually, I'm not sure. Well, let me reread this one because I just read it as it was written. Uh, Graham Rahal, two winless years after adding a teammate that was supposed to help the team. Mentioned that Takuma Sato there has three wins in those two seasons. So it's only nine laps led all season, and those were spread over four races. He says, what about Sebastian Bourdais? Winless in 2019. It snaps a five-year winning streak. Led six races, but only 19 laps in total. Closes with James Hinchcliffe, winless in 19, snaps a two-year winning streak, only led two races for a total of 22 laps. Then goes on to say, interesting stat, not only were these drivers winless in 19, but none of these four supremely talented individuals had a second-place finish in 2019 as well. As I think both Ron Hunter and Ray Hall could claim the cartoon anvil at least once when they had a fast car this year. Still, this group, just did not get the finishes in 19 that we would expect for their talent levels. He says, any MPMP, that is Marshall Pruitt, me personally, 2020 predictions, do all win next year. To the disappointment part, I think Hunter Ray would have to take that for sure. I know he and the team were very disappointed and felt like a win was on the cards more than once you mentioned, did certainly have a decent amount of cartoon anvils falling from the sky. Ray Hall was just such a hard one. We know for a fact, because he's proven it over and over again, Graham Ray Hall can win if the car is right at any event. You might say, well, isn't that true about anybody? If the car is right, people can win. There are some drivers who need the car to be right to win. There are others who, on days where it might not be perfect, still overcome some of those deficiencies and get it done. Um, Graham, we know for sure, charges hard, if not harder, than almost anybody else in IndyCar. We just look at the amount of cars that he passes on average. It's crazy. Just seemed like there were too many disconnections this year on the engineering front that made qualifying a challenge, that made him having to start farther back, made him have to do some pretty remarkable things to move forward, the norm instead of the exception. And if you're that far off in qualifying for that team, for him, right? if you're starting ninth and you know you should be fourth 
9th to 4th, it's not a crazy distance, but usually setup-wise, it's a pretty big margin, regardless of what the actual time discrepancy is. If the pole was a one-minute flat and Graham qualified ninth at a one-minute point two seconds, point three. It's only two-tenths, three-tenths of a second. You go, that's not much. True. Finding that much, though, finding that amount between Saturday afternoon qualifying and the start of the race at whatever, one o'clock on Sunday, with <laughs> usually no on-track activity uh, between it's a lot to ask. There's desperation involved. All right, we're changing everything on the car in the hopes of finding that much. It's when you're a tenth of a second off and you're fifth. You go, okay, we can probably find a tenth overnight. Two or three tenths. Again, by the numbers, it doesn't look big, but in terms of where we're at with IndyCar these days, with the vehicle so highly developed, so few areas to really find big, amounts of time it's a killer and so what do you get you get some sort of hail mary for a setup hoping to find that amount hail marys for those who watch football they you they get thrown a couple of them every sunday how often does the team throwing them actually catch the ball and win the game not often so even if you get close or closer you're still going to be off you're still going to have to do some remarkable things behind the wheel to compensate. If it's close, drivers can live with that and do remarkable things. If it's still a ways off, it's only so much. So that's why when I mention if the car's there, Graham we know can deliver. If it's off a little bit and you know it's that couple of tenths, there's only so much. I would just say that Ryan Hunter Ray should have won a race or two. The fact that he didn't wasn't always down to him. And fortune and good luck seemed to not always be on his side. I think on the Ray Hall side, it might have been a little bit more institutional. I think the team has some engineering things to figure out during the offseason. Is everybody in the right place? Is everybody a right fit for the team? Who knows? But I think there's going to have to be some tweaks there. Graham should be winning multiple races every year. Same as Ryan. Bourdais, my French fry, I definitely was hoping he'd win a race just to keep that streak alive. But the change in tire compound at many races this year really seemed to throw him for a bit of a loop. He admitted to as such, said it multiple times, as I have... I'm not sure if that's ambulance or fire going by. We do live right across from a hospital and the ER access. So I should warn you guys. Um, (laughs) You might hear that a little more often than you used to. Um, I really do think for Seb and Craig Hampson, his engineer, depending on what Firestone comes up with for their compounds next year, could very much dictate uh, their success yet again. Hinch, it's a hard one. Still working with a young engineer and Will Anderson. Two of them get on very well, have great faith in one another, but there's still just a lot to learn. Would say the team, you know, with Marcus coming in as a new teammate, not knowing exactly what you're going to get in terms of feedback, since he's seeing every single track except Coda for the first time 
in, you know, any kind of race scenario, learning a car for the first time, the tires, not as if he doesn't have valuable feedback to offer, but the learning curve is enough for him at every round to where it might be hard to say the team was truly locked into a strong two driver unified setup direction that expedited getting to a happy place. So I think that was certainly a part of things. Hinch just also seemed to get taken out <laughs> an awful lot early in races. Um, this just wasn't a great year for the team. Uh, they're another program that strikes me as one where, um, especially after parting ways with their technical director, Todd Malloy in August, there are a number of teams Foyt in particular, I'd say Carlin to a degree as well. I already spoke about Ray Hall, but uh, Spam uh, would also throw Ed Carpenter racing in there, knowing that there was definitely some non-happy stuff going on between the two entries and engineering groups. Might be one of the bigger portions to consider during this offseason. Maybe I'll write about it. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out who's going to drive for Spam and who's going to go here and all that. There's probably more IndyCar teams looking for significant talent, big pieces of the engineering puzzle to take them from being good, but not great to, Ooh, watch out big three or welcome. Now we got a big four, big five. Roughly half the grid is looking for big components to improve their overall competitiveness on the engineering front. Forget the driver's side. Um, you can see we had evidence last year. Indy was a great example of, you know, my pal Andy Brown came in to work with the McLaren team and Alonzo at Indy. It wasn't as if the engineering was bad, but there were many other things that were just off that certainly made it hard for them to get into the show. Beyond the crash and such, they weren't exactly flying all month. Some areas that I would say Andy probably inherited, maybe didn't have full control over, conspired a bit against their success. The crash obviously made things even worse. All kinds of other crazy things we know of as well. But then you look at, you know, home coast racing, and you go, whoa, wait a minute. These guys are truly having to, like, rely on folks hearing about how broke they are because a sponsor pulled out at the beginning of the month of May, and it was, you know, 50 little companies that came in and helped. And, I mean, they got no money, and they're running a car that is not optimized for the speedway, and yet, good driver and strong engineering team. Just shows you what the depth of engineering can do you look at some of these bigger teams where we're talking about the full season and you go, wow, those are some big star names in here, right? It's not a question of is there talent within the team? It's do all those talented pieces know how to work together? What happens when one guy who's really good at his job is just an agitator or doesn't like another key member of the engineering team? It might sound silly, but... It happened. It's the reason why a couple of teams that didn't win this year uh, never even came close to winning this year. Had years where you go, ooh, what went wrong? Well, the person turning the steering wheel and 
stomping on the pedals. Didn't forget how to do that part. Uh, there is some dysfunction on the timing stand or timing stands. Um, there could be dysfunction in managing. Hey, I see that engineer A and engineer B on our team, these two just hate each other. Well, okay. Doesn't matter. <laughs> We're paying you money to make good things happen and produce quick vehicles. As a manager, I need to get involved, insert myself, and figure out some sort of way that you all can work together. And so people disliking one another, whether it's race car drivers as teammates, engineers, strategists, managers, mechanics, whatever, that stuff happens every year. It's the team that hopefully has managers or maybe just the folks themselves could be the driver that's the peace broker coming in and saying, all right, we're not going to let you and the things that are keeping you from being good coworkers or happy coworkers tank our entire season. Coming back to some of this stuff, Jordan, not a big instance in most of the teams that you mentioned or drivers that you mentioned, but again, just know that in some cases, there are some things conspiring against their ability to win that wasn't just about the driving side. Let's go to Christopher Davis. Says, MP, is there any precedent for a round on the IndyCar schedule rotating to different tracks? Says, there may not be enough interest to draw fans every year to a race, but they might attend every other year. For instance, Watkins Glen or even VIR in odd years. It's an interesting one. Christopher, hadn't really thought about that. I would say that... My initial reaction and answer would be if fans only want to show up to a race every other year, I would say that you don't have a very strong fan base. If a race cannot work every year, that would make me think that there's a fundamental problem. And so signing up to go every other year, hoping that people turn out, um, I would never, I would never green light something like that. Uh, Is there maybe a place not for rotating tracks, but saying, hey, every year we're going to just try something? Hey, uh, every year we've got X amount of races. Should we do an all-star race at a track we don't visit? That's something I'm going to be writing about here shortly. IndyCars need to return to having some form of all-star event like the Marlboro Challenge. That went from 87 through 92. Maybe that could be a thing. Maybe that could be the, all right, uh, we're going to turn up and do something special. It's a one-day event, right? We're going to just try and keep the cost down for the teams. We're going to try and maximize the profit. Need to find a sponsor for this, the whatever challenge. But we're going to turn up, and maybe it rotates year to year. Uh, Maybe it's one year it's an oval, the other next year it's a road course but we're not going to go to any of the tracks on the calendar. So to your point, maybe the whatever challenge IndyCar all-star race does start out at Watkins Glen. Maybe it goes to pick an oval, pick something fun and interesting, come up with something where you go, well, maybe we could go and just sample and see if this area that has expressed interest, this track that's expressed interest Maybe we could go here and do this. Maybe we can get a crowd to come out 
knowing that this is a very special thing. It's a one day deal. You don't need to book multiple nights in a hotel. And, you know, we're just going to try and make this fun. This is about fun, not getting you fork out a crazy amount of money on this huge trip. Hopefully you could drive here. Even if you're just wanting to fly out. Cool. (laughs) Fly in Friday night, stay overnight in a hotel, come on out, enjoy the race Saturday. I'm guessing it'd probably be a Saturday afternoon, evening race, something like that. Maybe make it where folks could fly out on Saturday night. Just do this. So I don't know. Maybe that'd be a fun thing to do. Try out some different tracks we haven't been to or haven't been to in a while. See if there is uh, any interest. Daniel Kincaid calling back to something from last week's Q&A show. You mentioned a European race team interested. You, you wrote patterning. I think you meant partnering with an IndyCar team. And you said, is that IndyCar team Carlin? Well, I appreciate you asking, Daniel, but... As I said last week, I'm not prepared to mention anything other than there is a significant European team looking in. So if I'm going to tell you who the team is, that would kind of go against um, what I mentioned at the outset about if I'm forking out that kind of stuff, I'm losing trust. So can't answer that and would have obviously answered that last week if I felt I was able to. Jim Kaiser. Hey, Jim. Marshall, I was starting something new here. I think it'll be pretty self-evident. What better way to start than by honoring the new champion? Jim writes, Joseph Newgarden makes for a good haiku line in and of himself. Look at that. Our first ever example of haiku on the weekend in IndyCar, courtesy of our man, Jim Kaiser, who brought his sons out to both of our live MP podcasts at Monterey both of which I hope to be getting ready to post here very soon. Simon Rafi, you asked, or you said, came across this video showing the sad state of Nazareth Speedway. It's the only track I got to go to when I lived near Philly in 96. I saw the kart race that year. Was it thought of as a good track and what caused its demise? I know that most drivers loved it, absolutely loved it. As for demise, I just seem to recall it being something that fell victim to the cart IRL split, knowing that in terms of tracks to go to, uh, its, I guess, availability was not really continued once cart evolved into champ car. And then I believe it just fell prey to not enough events and also a bit of a plummeting in racing popularity outside of NASCAR as well uh yeah i just seem to recall there weren't many events there and certainly not enough to keep profits coming in let's see let's go to michael mueller uh, as i get down to my last couple of qu- actually i'm going to go to uh mark hurd says mp thinking about fantasy short tracks what about bristol would the carnage factor be too high got to think it would be fun to watch well yeah it would be absolutely fun to watch mark I love the idea of Bristol as I hear more ambulances and sirens in the background. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, We are expecting massive power outages, though, thanks to Pacific Gas and Electric. So that's why I'm trying to hurry up and get this done here, because truly the lights might be going out and uh, everything might be going out here. Um, I love the idea of Bristol. What I would love even more is some of these traditional 
NASCAR short ovals may be embracing IndyCar. It's another thought I've had. IndyCar, when I say need, I mean in my mind needs. I don't know if they really need to, but I believe, hashtag me personally, that IndyCar needs to look into some sort of new celebratory scheduling plan calling it something along the lines of IndyCar short oval summer where I realize that there are certain venues we go to road America at the end of June has become just in a short amount of time, kind of a fixture. We know that middle of July is typically IndyCar's visit to Toronto end of the month, beginning of August tends to be where mid Ohio lands not sure if summer, meaning the full expanse of summer, is, is what would pan out. Obviously, we've got Texas early in June. We've got what was Pocono that was falling towards the end of August. We've got you know a little bit of stuff in here with Iowa and whatnot. I'm just thinking it would be pretty cool in terms of honoring tradition, honoring very strong Midwest-centric traditions as well. I want to talk about going back to Milwaukee, talk about, you know, uh, Bristol, uh, some of these places. We've added Richmond back, which is amazing. I don't know if it's just adding another race or two that are short oval or if it's packaging this as a promotional item, right? Buy your IndyCar short oval summer package where we are going to be looking forward to seeing you at Gateway at Richmond, at Iowa, and so on. Be really cool if we could add another short-ish oval in there somewhere. But I do like the idea of treating summer as a special time, even if it's not three or four short ovals just lumped one after the other. I get that. That's going to be a little bit impossible, scheduling-wise, knowing that some other road courses and street courses really locked into traditional annual dates. But just from a, hey, this is what we got. We got a decent amount of them. There's a bit of a, a cadence to when they fall on the schedule. Let's celebrate that. Let's promote that. Let's do a ticket package. If you want to do all, however many it might end up being here in the coming years, three or four or whatever, I like that idea. And I just think IndyCar, even as its fan base evolves, gets younger, new, more new fans coming in, still a huge, huge number of its fans. Midwest, a little bit older, know the sport, know the time when short ovals and oval racing in general was a big part of its calendar. I'd love to see that happen, Mark. I just think this would be a really smart move for IndyCar to acknowledge and lock in as a tradition, right? So every every year we're going to have our, quote, short oval summer ticket package. Maybe you can work with a hotel chain. Maybe you can work with a rental car agency maybe you can work with an airline there's a lot of things you could potentially do to say cool if you sign up for this you're going to get five percent off ten percent fifteen percent if you book here you rent there you stay here you fly here who knows i mean if indycar wanted to do that uh, i am positive that they could gonna go to michael mueller here says Positive test of the aero screen is good news for safety advancement in IndyCar from 2020 forward. And a lot of 
the rest of what Michael wrote here, basically talking about is there a plan to have this filter down to road to indie formulas? Is there a timetable for creating versions of the arrow screen that would fit in the junior formula? We'll mention that did pose this question, Michael, to Jay Fry and Monterey during a long sit down that we had on many things technical, which will be in, I think, two main features and two or three sidebar stories for each in the next issue of Racer Magazine, the technology issue. And not meant to be a plug, I'm just sharing this because it's true. It's a lot of information and quotes and facts and whatnot in those stories that have not been published, at least on racer.com. And I don't know if many, if any other outlets have published them. So if you're wanting to really take a deep dive into the aero screen and also what could be the upcoming uh, kinetic energy recovery system, what will give IndyCar its 2022 powertrain being of hybrid variety, uh, the next issue of Racers, I think, is actually going to be something where a little bit of a unusual item, because usually we put everything on the web. I just said, hey, this is great stuff. Uh, I'm just going to save this for the magazine. So hopefully folks will know that you really want to get up to speed on some new things. The price, the anticipated cost of the aero screen, uh, the entire device, plus the cost of the replacement screens themselves the the shield itself that's in there i don't know if that's ever been published so anyways hopefully you'll check that out racer.com when that goes up for sale you can purchase that i believe the digital version or the print version um in that conversation in that sit down where i captured all the quotes and everything that i needed with jay fry tino belly darren sansom and everyone else who joined us did pose that michael didn't really get an answer I think someone last week might have asked this as well in a slightly different form. Well, we have a little bit of a challenge for IndyCar is that they handed off Indy Lights as a property to Dan Anderson and Anderson Promotion. What I don't know if there's an ownership thing, just my ignorance. I don't know if IndyCar said, we're going to quote, lease it to you for a dollar or whatever, please run it for us. Or if, Anderson Promotions truly owns Indie Lights. One way or the other, IndyCar's main involvement in Indie Lights, and I know there's three tiers to the ladder system. I'll get to that in a minute, but I'm just starting with the top category. IndyCar's main involvement, other than being involved in the sanctioning end, uh, they contribute the majority of the advancement prize that the quote million dollar advancement prize that Pacha Award got this past season to come up after winning the 18 title that Oliver Askew will receive to come in for 2020. But beyond that, the technical specification of the cars, uh, the the Dallara um, IL-15 chassis, that was commissioned by Anderson Promotion. Um, that's not an IndyCar car. That's the Andersons. Um then you move down to Indy Pro 2000, the Tatus chassis that they commissioned. And below that, in USF 2000, uh, same Tatus chassis, just slightly different engine. These are all Anderson promotion items. So what I don't know, and I didn't really get an answer out of Jay, 
to help provide one here, but I need to seek out. I'm actually going to plan on having Dane Anderson as my primary guest for the week in IndyCar here very soon. That's something that I want to get addressed in depth, in some sort of deeper explanation. This is something that I mentioned maybe even last week. Once folks see the arrow screen on the IndyCar, it's going to be very hard for those who fund their sons and daughters to be on the road to Indy, even for sponsors who come in and support. I think it's going to be a hard argument and rationalization to say, okay, so the quote adults get the safest vehicles, but the kids don't. It's not a case of don't from a, we don't care. We don't want to. It's, if you look at the numbers, for the most part, in Indy Lights, the car counts, they aren't high. Uh, we know USF 2000, Indy Pro have had good grids, not insane grids, but good grids. Uh, this, cost-wise, could be significant. And it's not just the buying it off the shelf thing, too. It's keep in mind what had to happen with the Delara DW12 before it could add such a thing to it. If we think about the AFP, the Advanced Frontal Protection Device, every Delara DW12 had to be stripped bare, sent off, and modified at Aerodyne, I believe it was Aerodyne, that installed the new mounting point and structure in the chassis in the dash bulkhead. I don't remember what that cost, but it wasn't cheap fundamental changes to the chassis itself had to be done to add the AFP knowing that this aero screen was coming. Those changes were made by IndyCar for the AFP knowing exactly what was going to follow behind it. So it wasn't kind of a waste the money on the AFP installation, then have to go back again, but there's still a need for it to go back again when they realized, well, we need to bond the rails that mount the aero screen onto the tub itself. We can't just simply bolt the front of the halo to where the AFP went and then the back of the halo to the roll hoop. We need to do a more structural mounting for holding the aero screen onto the chassis. And so the reason that only a couple of teams have been doing the testing with the aero screen is because, you know, not every team either had the money or the time or the resources, the extra cars to, while the current season is active, send those, strip those, send those off and have those modified with the frame rails that are now a true structural piece, bonded piece, not a bolt on, but, you know, bonded straight to the top of the cockpit, uh, I guess, enclosure frame and make that happen. So that's a second time car would need to be sent and modified. So I realize that whatever might be developed for the road to Indy in all three tiers, knowing that it's two different cars again, road uh, on the road, to Indy USF 2000 and Indy pro 2000, same chassis, which is smart. So there would only need to be, you know, one design for an aero screen there that could be applied to both uh, the cars, in whichever the two classes that have competed with the Tadis there. We'd only need to do that one design for the Delara IL-15. 
also curious timeline when that might be replaced. Now that the Tatus, that being really new, that should have a decent lead time for it to live. So whatever changes would be done to add in an aero screen, that'd be smart. That's going to be around for a while cost-wise. We'll see what they're thinking on the aisle 15. Imagine that'll still be around for another three, four, five years. But whatever the answer is, teams are going to have to strip bear, send off, have multi-thousand, you know, many thousands of dollars spent on modifying the tubs. You might say, but aren't these much smaller cars and is true and cheaper cars all true. The work still being done by specialists, it's the same, whether it's a DW12 or an IL-15, or the Tatus mobiles. Um, Still essentially the same work that needs to be done. So I would not expect it to be much cheaper, if any cheaper. Also mention the Dallara, with Dallara having its base here in Speedway, Indiana. Also, you know, Aerodyne Composites. There's some other smaller composites houses that are very familiar with making modifications like uh, the ones that have been done for the aero screen. I don't know if Tatus, while they have definitely have a U.S. distributor and have spare parts and all that, I'm not, you know, Tatus, which is based in Italy, not sure if they have the ability to do modifications like that here. If these tubs would need to be shipped back to Italy, if they would try and do some sort of contracting deal with, an aerodyne or similar uh, one way or the other where there's maybe a, a much easier solution in place for Delara. Uh, not sure if that's the case for Tatus. Regardless, we're going to have to have two totally different aero screen slash halo designs done for the road to Indy, two completely different installations done and teams that are already saying, boy, it's pretty darn expensive to do this. Uh, on the road to indie level even and we're not really prospering a whole ton michael and we're not finding as many entries and paying folks as we would like this is where i think we're just going to have a little bit of a practical issue to overcome Uh, who's going to pay for it how quickly can it get done who's going to do the development Uh, would that be red bull would that be i don't again i don't know um you know indycar's ability to fund this development working in partnership with red bull i know that red bull wants to establish themselves in more areas like this so i'm sure they are not asking crazy sums of money could ppg could all the same partners that have made indycar's aeroscreen could they come together to do the same for the road to indy i believe so um just someone needs to figure out how it's going to be paid for and if this is something that all the teams can truly afford to do, I know afford's a bit of a weird word. What do you mean afford? Can you afford to lose a young driver? Absolutely not. Can you afford to have parents saying, I'm not going to let my kid drive that thing. Uh, if you d- decide that it's needed for the big cars, it nope, not letting my kid in one unless you also decide it's needed on the smaller cars. So again, afford is a strange word. The easy answer is, well, you can't afford to continue racing without them. True. But if you do not have the physical cash in hand to make that modification, um, that's a potential showstopper as well. 
So none of these things have easy answers since money is the place where it starts and ends. Uh, what I don't know is how that gets solved. So I hope to find out, Michael, from Dan Anderson, what the plan is. I can tell you for sure Dan and his team are never the ones who fail to think and put ideas together about such things. So I guarantee you a lot of thought has already happened. Hey, Rocky's jumped up. It might be, oh, we've only got like two or three questions left. How did he know it was time to put his ass in my face? Thanks, pal. It's like he knows these things. Uh, Let's go to Bob Fay, and we have Carlos Villalobos and James Betha. Betha, I never know how to pronounce it, James. To close, Bob says, hey, Marshall, if you haven't updated us already on the podcast about any of the silly season loose ends, would like a quick update. Already did that, Bob. But he said, and this is why I moved it to the end, specifically interested in an official statement from Dale Coin Racing regarding Santino Ferrucci at some point. Really hoping he remains there. And you and Robin seem to think he'll be staying put. But something official would be nice. Um, so official, Bob, is what I'll center on here. An official statement on Santino would certainly come if he's going to stay. Otherwise, getting an official statement from them regarding anything else, that's just not who they are. That's not Dale. So I know you'd like to get an official statement. It would just happen if he's coming back. If he's not, then they tend not to talk about the things that don't involve them. I know that it has looked like and seemed like Santino would be back. I'll just share this again, although it isn't the first time, but since you asked, specifically about him i'll share it uh there have been a lot of folks that are interested in being in that second coin entry since santino let it be known in an article we did together that he was not signed so dale coin is someone who loves new talent loves looking at possibilities whenever a formula one driver has fallen out of favor with his team dale is usually the first to explore whether that driver wants to come to IndyCar. Uh, I think many young drivers would look at what Santino did, knowing that Santino was not super known or rated before this season, and realize that, whoa, that's a place I should really consider. So, yeah. Santino returning to coin, I think, would be best for him. I think it would give him a chance in a very comfortable and welcoming and warm environment to build from and have a very strong sophomore year, something where we would expect to see him on the podium a couple times. Maybe a distant possibility for a win if a lot of things happened. Also think that he's he's exposed his belly a little bit to Dale sharing that yeah he's looking around elsewhere you expect that to happen every team owner expects that to happen uh, don't know if Dale's the one to really accept it though knows it happens but maybe doesn't like to see it become public knowledge 
So I think Santino might have hurt his positioning there a little bit. I know that based on past experience, Dale is someone who loves looking around. And if he can find someone that intrigues him or interests him and can do a deal that he's willing to tolerate financially, Santino might definitely need to look elsewhere. Also know that Santino has been looking elsewhere. So just come back to your answer, the answer you want on an official statement, Bob. I can't tell you whether you'll be reading an official statement about him returning. I do expect him to land somewhere in IndyCar, though. And as I mentioned earlier, the McLaren angle seems like it could be one that might be a little bit more realistic than expected. Let's go to Carlos here, who asks, how does engine mileage work with events like the demo Joseph Newgarden did in Charlotte or even for aeroscreen testing? As I understand, that would be something where the team slash sponsor, in in the case of the Charlotte demo, team would pick that up. And also on the aeroscreen side, as I understand it, that's something that IndyCar would pick up if, uh, if they were unable to get both engine manufacturers to give them a little bit of a pass. Uh, it's usually a lot of bartering. Um, <laughs> no, if you can, you try to avoid having to invoice one another. So, again, is it a case where you know, if a manufacturer is being charged money at certain events for parking their hospitality rig or their technical support trailer, you know, an IndyCar controls that or bills for that. You go, hey, look, I don't know what the number is going to be on engine mileage for this or that or what that we could just straight up bill you for it. Is there something where you can void a bill that we would have to pay for this thing over here that's of the equivalent of, you know, could you give us some extra this if we need X amount of extra passes for that? Or again, we want to some track time here and you can help control the cost for that. I would say Carlos that if possible, if there is, is back scratching that is feasible where no invoices need to be exchanged. That's probably the route that is followed when it's between the series and the manufacturers for new gardens, Chevy motor being used for the, what was it? Nine laps, 10 laps at the Roval, a technical support person would need to be there to fire the thing up and monitor it. So I'm sure there was a bill for that, but the 20 miles of running or whatever it ended up being 25 miles of running. I don't know if that would be a separate bill or if either the motor that he used at Monterey, or if it was another motor that had some mileage on it, was just simply a portion for them to use since it wasn't a super, super big on-track event. All right, let's go to our final one, Mr. Bethay. I'm just going to go with that as the correct way. Marshall, when are you going to make Rocky and Rosie their own Twitter and Instagram accounts? Oh, So I've saved this for the end, and I'm going to keep this very short because I'm tired of talking, and I can guarantee you're tired of listening. So on almost every episode, I've mentioned Rocky because timing-wise, 
I think it just is shaken out where when I record tends to be somewhat close to their afternoon, evening, dinner, feeding time. And he jumps up because he wants attention, not attention terms of petting, but attention like, hey, idiot, feed me. So I think that's why he's been jumping up and showing me his ass so frequently. And that's therefore the reason why it gets mentioned, because, again, we just kind of go with the flow here on the old podcast. And so timing wise, me recording him showing me his ass, I think it's tied to feeding time. But to your main question here, which I guess, again, the reason I've been mentioning the cats a lot is because they've been making their presence known a lot. I do have a sensitivity here, James. And (laughs) you might have noticed that you rarely, if ever, see photos of my wife. It's not because she isn't amazing and beautiful and just the thing that makes my eyes the happiest they've ever been. It's because she's a little bit shy. She's an introvert. And she's amazing. She's the funniest woman, the most amazing woman, just everything. She is my entire world. But it's my world, our world. It's not a public world. So she doesn't really like to be photographed. She got really mad at me at the last one that I posted of uh, her leaving the hospital in, what, the end, early June. Um, I got, trust me, I got beaten up pretty good for that one. And you haven't seen any photos of her since then. You rarely see photos. She hates it when I post photos of she and I doing something. I think before that, the last one might have been like when we went to WrestleMania in what April of 2018. So, yeah, you might get one, maybe two photos of uh, Mrs. Pruitt per year because she just is not down. So while you don't see any photos or really hear from my spouse, You do hear from our cats a lot because I just choose to mention it. And they're just constantly amusing me doing silly stuff, so I post photos of it. But I'm very conscious and self-conscious of this, James. And it's because I don't want to be the cat IndyCar guy. Maybe I already am. Maybe I just need to accept it. But I really I don't want to be that guy because there's a sensitivity to a reporter who's been around for a long time isn't around as much um, related to their pet and their pet has just become a crutch and just the source of so much derision and yeah just sad truly sad and so I don't think that's the case with how things have been received with Rocky and Rosie But at the same time, I I just don't want to be kind of that, well, any more dismissed than I already am. I just don't want to be that kind of like, oh, he's the guy who's always posting about his cats, right? Isn't he married? Yeah. Never really see him, you know, posting photos of he and his wife or much there. So what? What's going on? Again, I'm sharing here maybe for the first time. My wife just really is not, it just doesn't jive with her so obviously i respect that so what do i have as a result to show from what goes on at home uh, on social media it's usually something racing related something i'm watching on tv or showing you one or two of our cats acting a fool in some way because the rest not something and there are lots of other things that happens in our lives wife just isn't really comfortable with that being shown so 
Um, it just leaves me with rock and Rosie is a fairly common theme. And those monkeys just amuse at least me. I could probably post five times as many things, but I hesitate to do that because I don't want to be, Oh yeah, Pruitt. He's the cat guy. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay, buddy. So that's why James, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have to hold off on Rocky and Rosie social media accounts because while I love what my pal Simon Pagano has done with his dog, Norman, and I'm sure that there are some others, what doesn't uh, Graham have one for his dog arrow? Is it arrow? I think it's arrow. I mean, that's, that's amazing. You know, everyone loves dogs. Not everyone loves cats. So yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it'd just be a step too far. I'm also maybe mildly concerned. My cats would have a bigger following than I do. I mean, I could, I would easily envision that because they probably do more interesting and amusing things on a daily basis than I do. So yeah, just letting you know, there's a little, there's a couple things here, a couple sensitivities, probably not going to do that with them. It might be a, a cry for help or a plea that I need some sort of intervention if I did start doing a Rocky and Rosie social media thing. Um, it could be fun, though, because as you guys might know, I can be a little bit of an asshole at times. Um, there's definitely some snark. Sarcasm has been a big part of my life since I was very young. Agitating. There's certainly big agitator gene inside of me that I have to try and stay on top of. I could see starting a lot of crap with drivers, pets that have social media accounts and just talking massive shit through the Rocky and Rosie account. Another thing that would probably be a plea for help. Another thing that would probably have my wife who does monitor everything I post on social media and I do mean monitor, you know, I get at least once or twice a week. What do you, what is that? Probably a good thing, right? I don't know. I kind of want to be an Eagle that flies free and just is above. And it's just red, white, and blue America. Also, I don't know. It's probably good that I kind of got my wife checking in and making sure I'm not making too much of an ass out of myself. Um, nonetheless, I don't think that's going to happen, James. Uh, maybe here we go. Here's the answer. My wife who does have a Twitter account refuses to do- to divulge it, but my wife does have a Twitter account. Maybe as someone who has a Twitter account, so she can easily monitor what her idiot husband is doing there. Maybe she could start a Rocky and Rosie account and that could be her thing. So, there's a little bit of distance and or friendly fire. I, I, may, I think what I've just told you all is I'm enough of a wuss that I would want my wife to be the one to jump on the cat Twitter account grenade. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is pretty sad. But it's me. And I'm just giving you the real deal. Uh, I'm sad. I can be an asshole. I can be an idiot. I can be really self-conscious. The fact that cats... And that's my area. That's my touch point that doesn't seem to fit right. That I'm closing the podcast on this this week. 
I just had a very loud voice in my say, in my head say, Pruitt, you can do better. And if that went through your head as well, well, you know what? We're, uh, we're in agreement here. We're going to go ahead and say amen. I'm also going to say thank you to you for all the questions you sent in. Uh, I hope to speak with Hinch and Rossi here. Uh, it's 2.36 p.m. They should be waking up shortly in uh, good old Australia. They also have practice today. So I don't know when we're going to fit this in. Who knows? Maybe they won't call. Maybe they're going to wait till next week. I have no idea. Uh, thank you to the Justice Brothers, to Ed Justice, Courtney Justice, the entire Justice family. They have an amazing last name, by the way. Uh, thank you to the Justice family. Thank you to the Justice Brothers and their line of automotive chemicals and lubricants, things that I have truly used since my very first year working in motor racing in 1986. Thank you to them for renewing our relationship and becoming a partner and sponsor of our podcast. Thank you to Cooper Tires, not only the official tire of the road to Indy on all three tiers, but also the official tire of just being freaking awesome and doing great things here with you all, with our podcast, with the live shows that we do, with the cool giveaways, the cool everything, for real. You guys know me enough to know that Blowing smoke isn't my thing. I love the folks at Cooper Tire because they have just become friends, brothers, sisters. It's not like I've known them for a long time, but they have become like family. And that's pretty cool to me. Thank you to them for their partnership and patronage of what we do. TorontoMotorsports.com. They are the official team fun of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. I think, I don't know how many items we're up to selling now, but there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah, if you like silly crap that has cartoon characters of my fat ass on it, or Seb as a box of French fries, or me as a hamburger, or our show stuff or whatever, they got it. Stickers, t-shirts, I don't know what all. I'd lose track, but they've got some fun stuff. Need to say big thanks to Joe Tonto. Realize that he didn't win the Driven Championship. Uh, but thanks to him, Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service, proud new sponsor of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Be able to get those t-shirts here very soon. All proceeds go, actually half the proceeds go to me. Why? <laughs> I haven't shared this with y'all because I shouldn't, but I'll do it here because I know that nobody's listening. The amount of bills we've got going on here, the amount of things, the amount of costs that are being incurred, uh, the amount of bills that we need to cover here in the future. Uh, it, it's That's why I love doing the podcast and posting silly things in social media, because they're bright spots. I don't have to piss my pants in fear. Otherwise, yeah, um, there's a part of me that wishes I had listened to wiser folks in my youth and gone straight to university, earned some sort of master's or doctorate in the stock market or something so I could have crazy amounts of money so that when my wife and I have significant things go sideways in life, um, I don't have to piss my pants worrying about how it's going to be paid for. Um, So yeah, the uh, Joe Tonto t-shirts. Yeah. Hopefully you like those and you want to buy some because it helps me. Uh, And finally bell racing helmets, in Speedway, Indiana, 
Chris Wheeler, madman, absolute madman. Thanks to him. Thanks to Kyle there. Thanks to everybody there who've just been wonderful partners. Um, I'll just share another thing. And it's just because uh, last year we did a lot of stuff together with Bell. This year we did one thing in May. Um, They're just strong enough friends and brothers that I've wanted to just mention them as a show partner and sponsor for many, many months afterwards. No money changing hands for that. No invoices going going anywhere. No merchandise coming my way. I don't have a stack of brand new helmets in the closet. Just they're amazing people. Take care of me. Uh, Take care of us. They're just wonderful folks. So even though we have greatly reduced what we've done on a quote business level this year, uh, their brotherhood, sisterhood, and just amaziosity, not a word, uh, just has compelled me to include them in every episode as a show partner and sponsor because that is what they feel like. That's their value to me. Um, nothing to do monetarily, just as people. So I am enriched by their friendship and their interest and effort to make my wife and I smile. And that's worth a heck of a lot to me. So I'm going to go ahead and say farewell for this week's episode. Hopefully we'll have a second episode with our main guests, which is the main reason I believe most of you tune in. Regardless, look forward to speaking to you next week and also telling the three of you whose questions got the most likes on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page that you'll be getting off track with Hinch and Rossi gift packs from torontomotorsports.com. And if you have just found what we do here and you are still listening, you might check out marshallpruittpodcast.com where all 650-something episodes live for your amusement. All right, speak to you next week.